morning. Please be seated. This is Judge Stickles. We're in the record in Prime Core Technologies, case number 2311161. Excuse me. Good morning, counsel. I'm sorry. We're having trouble picking you up. You need to raise your voice a little bit. Well, I can hear you up here. Hold on. I can't hear her. Okay. I will. Okay. Is this better? Yeah. Thank you. Is that better? Yes. Yes. Sorry about that, Your Honor. No problem. I would like to thank Your Honors and Chamber staff for bearing with us these past five months and being so accommodating and helping guide these cases to a conclusion, which I fervently hope happens today. I'd like to start by making some introductions. In the courtroom with me today are my partners, Darren Adjian, Joseph Evans, Mike Simon, and Jill Griffith, as well as my colleagues, Jake Jemnek and Luke Barrett. Also in the courtroom with me today are various declarants who have declarations in support of matters on today's agenda. Michael Weiss, one of the three members of our special committee. Rob Winning of M3 Advisory Partners, who is our financial advisor. Also of M3, Mr. William Murphy. And Michael Ash of Galaxy Digital Partners, the debtor's investment banker. And Brian Karpuk of Steto, the debtor's claims noticing and voting agent. If it may please the court, before I turn to the agenda, I would like to cede the podium to my partner, Darren Adjian, to give a brief overview of the case and its issues. Okay. Good morning and welcome, everyone. And let me just say, I have read pleadings before the court. And before we begin, I would like to discuss generally the plan that's before the court, the debtor's path forward, and the milestones that are set forward. So since you intended to make an introductory statement anyway, I'll let you proceed forward. Sure. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, it's been a while since we've been in your court and provided an update. So as Ms. Kandesky said, I thought it would be helpful just to spend a few minutes catching Your Honor up on what's happened and how we got to where we are today. Your Honor will remember that you approved bidding procedures early in the case. And our goal was to sell this company. Galaxy, our investment banker, they spent a lot of time talking to potential bidders. Ultimately, there was really just one party who was serious about an acquisition. And I think to this day, they're still serious about an acquisition. The problem is that that party did not have capital to consummate the transaction. They were on the cusp, we were told, of raising capital to fund the transaction. But on top of that, the bidder that was raising that capital, that money was coming from an investment fund that itself was in the middle of raising its own capital. So we had sort of two different financing contingencies involved there. And so I don't know where any of that landed ultimately. But what I do know is that at no point in time, including where we are today, did we have a serious bidder who actually had the capital to consummate the transaction. So we immediately pivoted to two different things. First, we pivoted to a wind down. This meant terminating additional employees, rejecting contracts that we no longer needed for an acquisition, and generally preparing for the liquidation toggle that we contemplated by the plan if ultimately we were not successful with the sale process. Second, Your Honor, Galaxy began exploring what I'll call transaction-like alternatives. And ultimately, that came in the form of a license agreement that Your Honor has already approved, and thank you for that. The license agreement is essentially a license to the third party to use Prime's intellectual property in perpetuity. We've told the court on several occasions the value of this company 
is that they put together a bunch of things that independently are not so valuable, but when put together are valuable. Uh, and that is what the third party is licensing. Um, so that is good news and will ultimately yield the estate $2.4 million. The other good news is that this was a non-exclusive deal. So Galaxy is actually out there right now talking to others who have expressed an interest in a similar licensing deal for the same technology, and that looks promising. Uh, Your Honor, the other noteworthy item on the agenda besides plan confirmation is the dip financing. Uh, so Your Honor, there were several ways here to fund a liquidating plan. Uh, however, along the way, one of the committee members, Polaris, reached out to us and initiated talks to provide the funding that we needed. We're very grateful for Polaris' support. Uh, they're owed more than $30 million in this case, so they have every incentive to see this case through to an orderly wind down and to pursue causes of action, and that is, that is exactly what this plan will do. Uh, because of the Polaris dip, uh, we will be able to satisfy admin expenses in full, and probably just as importantly, there will be significant funding to pursue causes of action. Your Honor, we certainly would have liked to have accomplished more in this case, during our short stay, but as you heard at the first day hearing from me, uh, we were hoping that this would be the shortest crypto bankruptcy case that's happened so far, and assuming we get through today's hearing successfully, uh, we will have accomplished that. And as you'll hear in more detail later, we have the support of the committee uh, and also the creditors um, in, in our various classes. Uh, Your Honor, I know you had some questions. Uh, depending on what they are, I may turn them back over to Ms. Candeston, but I'm happy to try to answer them uh, if you'd like. Well, I, I guess my you know, there are multiple plans, and the court gets all of this 48 hours before the hearing. And the plan initially provided for the three toggles. At what juncture did the debtor pivot to liquidation? Was that the end of November? I think it was the end of November. Uh, I mean, basically when we learned, we made a decision when we canceled, we filed a notice of cancellation right. of, the, of, the, of the auction. And I'd say that leading up to that, we were certainly strongly considering uh, moving away, just given what we knew, but we didn't want to publicize that fact because it could have had an adverse impact on you know, what was left of the sale process. But certainly by the time we filed that notice of cancellation of auction, that is definitively when we said, we're, we're not selling this business. Uh, we can't afford to keep employing all the people we have employed. We need to reject contracts that we were sort of holding back if there was a buyer. Okay. And I don't remember the exact date of well, that I'm, I'm thinking out of in the context of, at that point, the debtor had already solicited, correct? I believe solicitation must have gone out. Right. So uh, in terms of notice to parties yeah. of what the process was going to be going forward, because as I read your plan, the plan itself still speaks of a toggle and still contains sections regarding a reorganization transaction and a sale transaction. I'm going to turn it over to Ms. Kendall. Okay. Your Honor, on November 28th, we filed a supplement to our disclosure statement. That was before the, a week before the voting deadline, where we explained that we were pursuing the liquidation toggle um, and that the sale process had not been successful. Uh, in our minds, because you know, typically you don't see all the toggles removed in the final plan, and we thought it would be more confusing to creditors to have so much red all over the plan, um, we left the plan as is and then included that information in the supplement. So there's, I just want to make sure, because that's exactly how I read it, that it was in a disclosure statement, but nowhere in the plan does it say that the toggle is no longer in effect. Um, no, that the, the plan, the 
plan. They did have, everybody at the voting parties did have notice that there were multiple toggles and any one of them could have been triggered. Um, and so by putting the additional disclosure, which we served out um, in the disclosure statement supplement, that was providing notice that you were pursuing a liquidation transaction. And it's our position that they always had notice that this was a potential outcome. Okay, so let me ask you this. With respect to sources to fund the plan, walk through, I appreciate that there is a proposed dip for $3 million of that $10 million to go to funding. And I understand that there's investigations with potential litigation, you know, clawback, DNO, perhaps the 98F wallet. So talk to me, what are the sources to fund this plan? All of the things that you just referred to. Also, the license fees under the Swan license agreement. The funds that were received under the Audius subject to D&I settlement by liquidating the Audios. And I think that's the basics. And so, as I understand, walking into this plan, the whole issue of ownership with respect to customer accounts is unresolved and punted to another day. Yes, we did bring one motion. The court encourages no motion to make specific merits arguments. There's nothing wrong about that. That was one motion we brought on these account treatment issues. The other was the settlement we entered into with PDOT. That was a continuation of an account settlement issue. And then in the plan, we've added to address objections and for a number of reasons, we've added account treatment procedures. That's 2.5? Yes, 2.5B. To address concerns that there was no clarity or ring fence around how these would be done, the timing and what have you, and just giving people an opportunity to look for these procedures, an outside date by which to know which category of contract they fall into, and then the next steps after that. We also put those in there because we wanted to promote judicial economy and avoid having multiple people filing disparate motions, even though they could be addressed at the same time or in an omnibus fashion. So we wanted to sort of provide a runway for an orderly determination of these issues. So walk for me. How do you anticipate? So the debtor is going to send notice. There's a deadline for people to respond. And let's say at that point, first of all, how many accounts are there to reconcile? In the contracts? Yes. Well, there are, I believe, I'm sitting on the top of my head, if I'm wrong, under 500 integrator contracts, and then there are full-time individual contracts. All right. So how do you anticipate proceeding forward to the extent that you get objections to what the debtors propose as either being ownership or not ownership? Well, we would meet and confer with those parties to come up with a schedule and a hearing date that we would like. So we would approach chambers to schedule those matters for hearing. And so we're going to have potentially millions of one-off disputes on ownership? 
I don't think it's, I think for the most part the end user agreements are consistent. I think the, the major issues are with those integrator agreements because some are bespoke, some are you know strictly under the form, uh, master services agreement, and some are legacy agreements. I think the big issue is going to be sort of categorizing those and approaching those on an omnibus basis. Now the one-offs are going to come, I think, with bespoke agreements that are so dissimilar from each other that they need to be addressed individually. I don't believe that the individual end-user agreements, the four million agreements, are going to be any different from the standard version, and if they are, um, I don't believe it's going to be that big of a number. time frame the debtors plan to be resolved on all these issues okay, largely there is an outside date of 120 days by which the wind down debtor will notify customers as to the scope that they fall into and then the and, and an estimated time frame for when you know that decision will be made we, I won't speak for the, the wind down the wind down debtor or the plan administrator elect but just walking through the issues with my team, it doesn't seem like those would be going beyond a year. I think that is a good outside date. I think it's probably a lot closer. And we've already been in talks with, with certain customers to set deadlines that are well in advance of that. Okay, um, I just had one other comment before um, we proceed forward, and I'm sorry, but I just want to, I want to make sure that I have a firm understanding of what I've read. Um, the debtor has not done any um, cram down analysis with respect to rejection of Class B. If the tab, if this court accepts the uh, tabulation, that's un, I forget the term you use, the un. Untreated? Yeah, untreated tabulation. Is there a reason? No, no. I but you'll be prepared to address it today? Yes, I will. Uh, we have our voting um, agent, Kelly Lopez, and Mr. Kirkup, and they'll be prepared to address it. Okay, all right, thank you. Bear with me a second. Is this second amended? Um, yes. Okay, I have a copy. I'm assuming it doesn't have a docket number on it, but I have a copy. <coughs> um, so I'd like to thank your honor for entering orders um, on items one through 10 prior to today's hearing. And uh, I'd like to now cede podium to my colleague, Liz Barrett, who will present items number 11 and 12. And with your honor's permission, Bear with me a second, Mr. Barrett. Sure. 
You may begin. Uh, good morning, Your Honor. For the record, good morning. Luke Barron of Smith Center Royal Library on behalf of uh, May I proceed? Yes. Uh, Your Honor, the first item on the agenda that I'll be handling with my, my colleague Liz is item 11. The notice to contract parties is sent to assume the secretary's contract and on expired date. Filed as document number 166. Your Honor, the center has received two objections to the notice. However, in the time since the filing of the notice and the filing of the objections, the debtors filed their third amended plan supplement as docket number 595. The third amended plan supplement identifies the underlying contract for both objections in the schedule of rejected contracts, rendering these objections moot at this time. Uh, unless Your Honor has any questions, I'd proceed to the next item on the agenda. Okay, so are the debtors withdrawing these objections? I'm sorry, Your Honor, these are objections filed by their contract counterparty. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was looking. You're just giving, uh, understood. Continue. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, not at all, Your Honor. Now, the next item I'd like to address is uh, item number 12, and that is the debtor's objection to proof of claim number 416, filed by Connor O'Brien. Uh, that was filed with document number 434. Your Honor, attached to the debtor's objection is the declaration of Haley Murphy and Unless Your Honor has any questions, I'd like to move Mr. Murphy's declaration into evidence at this time. Does anyone in, um, object to the admission of the Murphy declaration at docket number four, 434? I hear none. I don't see any hands on Zoom, so the declaration is admitted. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Your Honor, the debtors were able to get in contact with Mr. Murphy over the past few weeks, both via email and telephone, and explained to Mr. Murphy the need to file a objection or to appear today or to argue against it. I'm not sure if Mr. Mer uh, excuse me, Mr. O'Brien is in the courtroom or on the Zoom. Is Mr. O'Brien on Zoom or in the courtroom? Mr. O'Brien, if you are present, would you like to be heard? <coughs> I see no hand. I don't hear any response. So I do not believe Mr. O'Brien is here. Thank you, Your Honor. In that case, the debtors would request that the court sustain the debtor's objection and disallow respondent O'Brien claim in its entirety. Okay. Let me ask, does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the objection to Mr. O'Brien's claim? Okay, hearing none, I have reviewed the objection uh, based on the evidence presented in the Murphy Declaration and no response having been filed to the objection and Mr. O'Brien having not appeared at the hearing, I will enter the proposed order sustaining the objection. Thank you, Your Honor. Now, as my partner, Ms. Kandesky, noted, at this time I'd like to take the agenda slightly out of order, with Your Honor's permission. Okay. Uh, I'd like to proceed with item 15 on the agenda, the debtor's motion to further amend the amended creditor interest order. Your Honor, uh, attached to the debtor's motion, which was filed at docket 474, is the declaration of William Murphy in support. Uh, in addition, the debtors filed an amended declaration of Brian Carper in support at docket 525. Uh, at this time, unless you have any questions, I'd like to move both of those declarations into evidence. Let me ask, does anyone object to 
the admission of the carpool uh, declaration at docket number 525 or the Murphy declaration at docket number 474. I hear no one. The declarations are admitted. Thank you, Your Honor. Does anyone wish to cross-examine the declarants? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Chris Studi at the United States Trustee. Wish to uh, cross-examine Mr. Carpenter. Okay. Your Honor, by way of background, who, who does motions for an amendment under the law? The debtors are seeking relief to carve out certain parties that they do not believe are creditors from notice to the court. Your Honor, by way of further background, early in the case, at, in, at the interim order, docket number 39, you authorized the debtors to, among other things, serve certain parties via email, which is consistent with their prior practices and their treatment of contract counterparties and customers. Your Honor, you entered a, the amended final order at docket number 168, which contains substantially the same language. Following the entry of the final order, in the course of serving certain documents, including the bar date notice, confirmation and the confirmation hearing notice, the debtors claimed the noticing agent identified certain service-related emails, specifically that encountered certain undeliverable emails. Now, these emails are uh, a little over 130,000 out of 4.5 million emails that were attempted to be served in the first place, a success rate of approximately 97%. And the debtors suspect that these parties are end users, not integrated or aggregated. Several causes identified with respect to these issues that the claims and noticing agent found. Uh, some of these emails have been marked as spam, some were blocked by the end users, uh, some end users unsubscribed from the emails, and yet others had full email inboxes, improperly formatted email addresses, or had domain entries that caused objections to the email. Following discovery of the undeliverable email and the issues underlying it, the claims and noticing agent advisor to the debtors, work together with the debtors' employees to reconcile the service list of emails against the debtors' books and records. In doing so, they identify a number of duplicate email addresses, and, they, and the ultimate result is that they found that the vast majority of the undeliverable email addresses were not represented on the debtors' books and records. In fact, such a vast majority that 99% undeliverable email parties were not in fact, or, or excuse me, debtors believe that 99% of the undeliverable email parties are not in fact creditors of the debtor. So what are they? These are uh, duplicate emails. Or who are they? What or who are they? point that, as I noted, over four and a half million parties were served via email, when in reality only 50,000 parties, in unique individual parties, were represented in the books and records of the debtors. So we suspect that the majority of these emails are either duplicates or simply parties that the debtors may have interacted with, but who do not have claims against the debtors. Well, did the claims agent have the ability to analyze and reduce duplicate claims? I mean, duplicate emails? 
Your uh, exact duplicate is yes, and I apologize if I've been precise in my wording. What I'm referring to is parties that may have had more than one email address that still reached the same individual individual party, such as parties that had a Yahoo and a Gmail and a Hotmail. I'm just using that by way of example. Right. But they all went to the same party. So when I see duplicates in this instance, that's what I mean. So w was there a way to determine if a, a if a party had multiple email addresses and one email address was successful and, for example, another was not? Uh, yes, Your Honor. That was part of the reconciliation okay. that was done by the, done by the hiring provider and the claims and notice provision. So as I noted, Your Honor, the ultimate result is 1% of the roughly 130,000 undeliverable, undeliverable email parties are believed by the debtors to be credible. That 1%, roughly 1,200, were served by first-class mail, in accordance with Your Honor's order. The debtors are now seeking leave to abstain from serving this, the remaining roughly 130,000 that they do not believe are creditors of the debtors' estate. How so many is it you're seeking relief from? I'm sorry, the number? Uh, it's roughly 130,000. Now, serving the balance of the undeliverable email credit, uh, excuse me, undeliverable email email addresses, would cost the estates roughly two hundred fifty-four thousand dollars plus years. At base, Your Honor, the debtors are seeking to balance their goals, preserving the value the value of the estates, and using these funds for asset recovery efforts and other Chapter Eleven goals, as opposed to using these funds to receive the first-class notice, first-class mail notice for parties that they don't believe are creditors. It's the debtor's position that this, go, this relief is squarely authorized under, under Section 105 of the Bankruptcy Code, as it plainly seeks to further the goals of the Bankruptcy Code in preserving value and distributing that value to creditors, as opposed to using it in a way that would be inequitable. Is preserving value a higher standard under the bankruptcy code than due process? Not necessarily, Your Honor. However, it is the debtor's position that here these creditors have received these creditors have received notice. They've received publication notice, and the debtors have attempted to serve notice. However, it's also the debtor's position that these parties simply are not creditors. L let me ask you this: Did did Stretto attempt to email them more than once? Like, for example, did they email them from a, one Stretto account and when that was unsuccessful, set up a separate email for purposes of serving them? I was trying to understand this from the declaration. Yes, Your Honor. It's my understanding that they attempted service through a multitude of different ways and emails different. Different domains? That, that is my understanding. Your Honor, I'd like to emphasize that the debtors here are in a unique position that, that justifies this relief. The estate is severely strained, as, as has been discussed, having entered Chapter 11 under a cease and desist order with an inability to generate revenue. Further, as I noted previously, the nature of the debtors' business resulted in a, a, an outsized number of F-20 counterparties 
that were not in fact credited to the state. As I said earlier, there was roughly four and a half to five million individuals in LRW served compared to 50,000 parties represented in the various counties by a clear and crystal record. Further, Your Honor, it was a key sticking factor for these others to communicate with their counterparties and their, and their customers via email. And it was the real expectation of these parties that such email communications would continue as opposed to mail. Does the debtor even have mailing addresses for all these parties? No, Your Honor. Your Honor, turning to these parties and the liberal holding in LRW, the debtor would note that, as discussed previously, some of these parties have, in fact, opted out of notice. They have, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. They have what? They've effectively opted out of notice, Your Honor. They've either unsubscribed from the terms and notices of those emails, or they've blocked those emails, or they've flagged those emails as spam. With respect to those parties, they have effectively affirmatively opted out of their own accord. Even parties that have not opted out did receive service. The debtors publicized the confirmation. The debtors made publication notice in the national New York Times, in the national version of the New York Times. And, Your Honor, even assuming for the sake of argument that creditors do exist, which the debtors do not believe have not been served, the harm they will sustain is minimal, as they are carved out from the release and payment plan explicitly at Article 1.152. These parties that did not receive email service are excluded from the definition of releasing parties. And as Your Honor has recognized, parties that don't receive notice are not bound by release. Your Honor, in light of the estate's limited resources, substantial attempts to serve these people to date, and the debtors' belief that the undeliverable email addresses are not, in fact, credible, but duplicate email addresses for parties that do not hold claims against the estate, the debtors submit that the equitable solution here is to permit them to forego the service and preserve the value of over $260,000 to pursue asset recovery efforts for their estate. Well, that's actually what has already happened. You have foregone the service, right? I mean, you've proceeded forward, we're going to confirmation, and these parties haven't been served. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. That's correct at the moment. I mean, they've chosen to attempt it. So is this a today issue, or is this a future issue? Is this an issue that the court should address when it's ripe, when someone comes forward? Your Honor, I would suggest that it is both a today issue and a future issue. I think the question of whether service will be performed moving forward is a today issue, and whether this value can be returned to the value of the estate. I think the question of whether a creditor who comes forward later actually receives notice is certainly an issue for that time, should that occur, or should that be on the spot. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Cudia? Let me ask, does anyone else wish to be heard with respect to this motion? Before Mr. Cudia? Okay, Mr. Cudia. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. Joseph Cudia for the United States Trustee. 
I did have some questions for Mr. Crocker. I'd like to start off with that. Certainly. Um, let's take a five-minute recess and we'll resume. Thank you. Please be seated. Is the witness available? Hi. Can you swear in the witness? Thank you. Thank you. stand. Please raise your right hand. Please state your full name and spell your last name for the court record, please. Brian Karpuk, K-A-R-P-U-K. Do you affirm that you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge and abilities? I do. You may be seated. Your Honor. Mr. Kudia. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, I'm going to be referring to Mr. Karpuk's declaration. Um, I have a copy for him if he does not have one. That would be great. May I approach the witness? Yes. Uh, Mr. Carpenter, you're but thoroughly familiar with Mr. Cudia, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I can't locate that declaration. Hold on a second. What? Oh, that would be perfect. Sorry. I was say, what's the docket number? But thank you. Thank you. You may proceed. Exhibit A is a detailed list of the parties that were unable to be emailed the notice of commencement. Okay. And can you describe what each of the categories is and what they mean? Sure. 
suppressed unsubscribed means that these parties so suppressed means they were they were the email was not attempted because of an earlier communication from that like unsubscribe means that the recipient had previously indicated to Scredo that they had they wanted to be unsubscribed from from future emails complained means that they may have responded to the email or reported to their their IP like their their email provider that they did not want to receive emails and then invalid was you know there there's something wrong with the the email address itself that would not allow it to be to be to be received unresolved means that ultimately we attempted the email but it it just kind of no real like final communication was received from their email provider as to why it could not get through undeliverable address forming formatting error again like a bad email address undeliverable invalid address again bad email address undeliverable rejected by the recipient domain just the 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 domain the email provider would not accept the email from us undeliverable mailbox full if you have like a you know a Yahoo or a Gmail account you can only have you know so many gigabytes in your email address and so it would not make it it will no longer accept emails from them from from anyone undeliverable IP blocked whether at the domain level or by the individual user they did not want to receive future emails from from the Stratto domain undeliverable suspected as spam the either the party that the recipient itself or the email provider identified it as spam and then undeliverable connection timeout it's similar to the to the unresolved where it we you know we would make one attempt and then if it's called like a soft bounce right so we'll go with it we have a bad email address we'll get a hard bounce so this is not exist if a soft bounce is it doesn't really say it can't get through immediately and so we will attempt that usually like two more times over the course of the next couple days in order to try and get that email through and 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 then connection timeout and ultimately we reach a point where we no longer make attempts suppressed unsubscribes for suppressed complained potentially rejected by recipient domain suspected as spam yes I those would be the ones thank you can you please go to exhibit B and I know that appears to be a similar chart but there's a new category of suppressed pre-excluded 
Can you explain what suppressed pre-excluded means? So suppressed pre-excluded, it really involves kind of the similar categories, but they were identified from prior campaigns that they were either a bad email address or they were reported as spam or they had unsubscribed. And so they did, you know, either they could not be reached or they did not want to be reached. And I think primarily it would be bad email addresses asked to unsubscribe or reported as spam are the three categories of undeliverable that would be categorized within that pre-suppressed pre-excluded. And that would be from the results of the sending of the notice of commencement, correct, that you got the pre-excluded? Primarily, yes. I mean, there are other, you know, individual communications that would be ongoing, you know, between the notice of commencement and the notice of bar date, but that is, yes, primarily where that would come from. So, again, if I'm understanding you correctly, this, I'm sorry, let me back up a second. Exhibit B, what does this chart show the results of? This chart is the parties that could not be reached by email for the notice of bar date. Thank you. All right, so the pre-excluded, again, if I'm understanding you correctly, is based off of the results from the sending of the notice of commencement. So that everything below suppressed pre-excluded is from the results of the bar date notice? That's correct. And would that description hold the same for Exhibit C? Yes, Exhibit C is the parties who could not be reached by email for the notice of confirmation hearing. The categories, you know, described there are, you know, more or less the same. The suppressed pre-excluded, I know specifically, are related to three categories of undeliverable from, you know, bad email address from prior campaign. That was like, I think, 60,000 of them reported as, or unsubscribed is about 24,000, and then the remainder were reported as spam. Okay, and the total for that not receiving the notice of confirmation hearing is 131,328? The total not received by email, that's correct. And do you know how many of them were served by mail? First question. I believe for the notice of confirmation hearing, about, I think in the declaration it says like 1,300 of them were served by mail subsequently for the scheduled parties. Thank you. Your Honor, I have no further questions. Thank you. Does the debtor have any questions? I don't. Thank you. You're excused. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Your Honor, again, for the record, Joseph Kennedy is the trustee. Excuse me. The Supreme Court in Mullane v. Central Hanover Bank and Trust held that due process requires notice reasonably calculated under the circumstances to apprise interested parties of the pendency of the action. Now, in the bankruptcy context, Bankruptcy Rule 2002 is the primary rule dealing with notice. It requires notice by mail to all creditors of several items in the bankruptcy case. Among those are notice of commencement, bar date notice, confirmation hearing notice, and supplemental notice. And that makes sense. As the claims bar date and the confirmed plan are intended to bind all creditors, and creditors cannot be bound if they don't receive notice. Here, all creditors, per the testimony of Mr. Law at the August 25th hearing, are some 5.4 million customer parties. Per the final matrix order in these cases, the debtors received permission of the court to serve notices by email for customers that did not request delivery of hard copies by mail. However, if a notice email is returned as undeliverable, and no working email address can be located, that party must be served by traditional service methods, including first-class mail. What happens if there isn't a mail address? Counsel just told me they don't have mail addresses for all these parties. I believe the order says for those equal addresses can be found. So in a case where the debtors had a physical address, they would need to serve them by mail. If they don't have the address, a publication notice suffices. Undeliverable or bounced-back emails are not a new phenomenon. Here, approximately 3% of the email addresses that the debtors had for their customers were undeliverable. In other words, this problem was foreseeable and to be expected. Mr. Arcudi, how is this any different than U.S. mail service of a notice of confirmation or solicitation or confirmation hearing in which a debtor serves the notice and the debtor receives mail is undeliverable or never receives notice whether or not it's confirmed or received? Well, in the case of, in the context of email, I'm not sure that the, if it has, I'm not aware that the jurisprudence has really caught up with email. People have multiple email addresses. They change email providers. Again, I'm not sure, again, that the law has caught up with that. I can see that, I can see where there may be some parallels, certainly. But don't we routinely enter orders that, for example, solicitation procedures that say the debtor needs to make a reasonable effort to resend undeliverable mail or some orders say the debtor doesn't need to make any effort to attempt reservice on undeliverable mail? Yes, I recognize that, Your Honor. However, though, in this matrix order, they are required to attempt email service when they have an address. 
So let me ask you, is, is your concern here that the court is being asked to modify an order that was entered early in a case that set forth procedures? Or is your concern here that actual mail service should be effectuated? Uh, our concern is notice to affected parties. Um, it was, you know, the, obviously the court entered the order authorizing email service. Um, our concerns are, well, we do have a concern actually about the, uh, about what the reconsideration of the matrix order. Uh, but primarily it's notice. Uh, it's notice to parties who may have a claim against the debtor. So I guess here's my question back to you. You started this by saying due, due process uh, requires notice, notice reasonably calculated under the circumstances. Yes. So under the facts of this case, the circumstances of this case, and, and I think you, we both agree this is unique industry. Um, don't we have evidence that service here is electronic? Isn't that the notice here that would be reasonably calculated under the circumstances of this case? It may very well be, Your Honor. Um, as has been stated earlier in this case, the uh, parties dealing with, uh, with Prime have agreed in most cases to service by email. And as I understand it, that's at least part of the reason that email service has been authorized in the crypto cases. Um, again, here, um, it's really a concern about notice and about parties that may be out there that may have changed their email address, their email provider may have gone down, they may have switched email providers, and it's not getting notice of the case and not getting notice of what's going on in the case. How's that different than people who move and don't provide an email address? I mean, a, um, a post office box or address, mailing address. Um, sure. Um, as far as a, a mailing address, people do have forwardings that they can use. Uh, also, at least uh, I know from my personal experience, I've changed email addresses more often than you know than a uh, you know a physical address change. But again, I believe it's an area where the, the jurisprudence is not fully developed. I don't disagree with you. On that, we can agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, the motion does state that over 100,000 customer parties didn't receive the confirmation hearing notice or the supplemental notice. If I understand now the process correctly, once an email is bounced back, that address is excluded from future email notices which means a lack of notice is compounded. The debtors are now requesting court permission to serve by first class mail those undeliverable parties who the debtors believe are actual creditors. And they base that request on cost, the number of service parties as compared to scheduled creditors, potential refusal of service, and the publication notice. And I'd like to look at those in reverse order. Mm -hmm. 
It's well established that publication notice is insufficient where a party's address is known to the debtor. In fact, the Supreme Court in City of New York versus New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad said that much. Publication notice cannot substitute for other forms of service when the party is known to the debtor. Refused service. In paragraph 35 of the motion, the debtors assert that the unscheduled, undeliverable email parties have effectively opted out of receiving notices in these Chapter 11 cases, some even doing so twice. Again, looking at the claims agent declaration, that appears to be a small percentage of those that can be verified that took some kind of affirmative step to decline service. The large number of notice parties is a function of the nature of the debtor's business. The debtors concede in the motion and by the filing of their matrix that their customers total some 5.4 million, any of whom could have claims against the debtors. The motion in paragraph 33 contends that 99% of the parties they are required to notice do not hold claims against the debtors based on their books and records. That's not a proper justification to limit the notice. The whole point of filing the creditor matrix is so that they can assert their rights in the case if those parties believe they have a claim against the debtor. The creditor matrix would be unnecessary if pool of potential claims was solely determined by what's in the debtor's books and records. Mr. Pudia, is it the U.S. trustee's position that the confirmation hearing should not go forward because of this issue? Yes, that is our position, Your Honor. I do acknowledge that in the most recent version of the plan, the definition of releasing parties has been modified to carve out the undeliverable email parties from the releases, which is helpful, but they likely would not be bound anyway if they didn't receive notice. Further, the debtor should want all the customers bound by the bar date and the plan for finality. On to cost. When the debtor sought to serve parties by email, they estimated the cost of even just serving the notice of commencement by mail would cost the debtors $10.2 million. Serving all of the all-creditor notice by email has undoubtedly saved the debtors millions. Saving money for creditors is not a bad thing. However, there are certain costs that are incurred when running a bankruptcy case. One of them is the cost of providing required notices. These same cost pressures exist to a greater or lesser degree in every Chapter 11 case. And by the way, the relief already granted in this case, the debtors have reduced the number of parties to be served by traditional methods by 97%. The additional expense is unfortunately necessary to ensure parties get the notice they are entitled to under the rules in the code. Lastly, I'd like to talk about the standard 
upon which the motion to amend should be evaluated. The U.S. trustee believes that Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 60, titled Relief from a Judgment or Order. And among the grounds listed there for relief are mistake, inadvertence, surprise, or excusable neglect, newly discovered evidence with reasonable diligence could not have been discovered in time to move for a new trial, fraud, misrepresentation or misconduct by an opposing party, the judgment is void, the judgment has been satisfied, released, or discharged, or any other reason that justifies relief. Now the final matrix order in this case was the subject of an invested hearing and the debtors did receive the relief they requested. Now the debtors want relief from the resulting order. The only provision of Rule 60B that, in our opinion, could conceivably apply is B6, any other reason that justifies relief. However, even that provision requires some, and I quote, extraordinary circumstances where without such relief an extreme and unexpected hardship would occur. That's Satterfield v. District Attorney, Philadelphia, 872 F. 3rd, 152 3rd Circuit, 2017. Could you repeat that site, 876? Sure, 872 F. 3rd, 152. Thank you. And the precise is, the pin is 158. Thank you. Here, some level of undeliverable emails was entirely predictable. In fact, it should have been expected, and the final matrix order made provisions for that. It's far from an extreme and unexpected hardship. The U.S. trustee asked that the court deny the requested relief and enforce the existing final matrix order and delay confirmation of the plan until such time as all parties who are entitled to notice receive same. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Good morning again, Your Honor. Once again, Bruce Karabach for debtors. Your Honor, debtors' customers and counterparties almost exclusively interface with the debtors through email prior to petition date. They had obligations under their agreements with the debtors to keep the record in current. And they had every expectation that email service would continue following petition date, as it is how they had always interacted with the debtors. Your Honor, the situation here is no different, as you discussed in state court, as it would be with the IRS case. Parties have obligations to keep their mailing addresses as updated or to keep forwarding instructions if they expect to receive their mail. The same is with email, as is the same with email addresses. The fact that jurisprudence hasn't quite caught up with the world of email should not impose additional burdens on these Chapter 11 estates as they attempt to proceed to confirmation and pursue asset recoveries for the creditors. Your 
I'd also like to address, Your Honor, you heard about the exclusion of certain email addresses after the initial sale. There is an important reason for this. The debtors claimed they were originally maintained valuable intellectual property. This intellectual property was said to have suffered damage, which was repeatedly flagged as spammed or blocked or deported to certain email domain administrators. That's the reason for the ongoing exclusion as opposed to just continuing to attempt to serve these email addresses over and over and over again. How many, excuse me, I'm sorry, how many mail addresses do you actually have out of the 130,000 customers who email wasn't provided or the email was not effective, I should say? Your Honor, unfortunately I don't have that information available this morning. Your Honor, ultimately here we're looking at a threat of real harm today to the debtors' estates in the amount of $264,000 if they serve these parties moving forward. Because they don't believe that creditors are creditors and they don't believe our claims against the estates. Compared against creditors that, as we've noted, will not be bound if they do not enter these food sales and they can seek relief at a later date. Balancing those issues, we respectfully request to grant the motion to amend to meet the situation of the debtors and the harms that would befall them. Let me ask you to address briefly the U.S. Trustee's argument that you haven't satisfied the grounds required under Rule 60. Yes, Your Honor. It remains the debtors' position that this relief is squarely within Bankruptcy Code Section 105 in the Court's inherent equitable authority and authority to address its own orders and jurisdiction to retain its own orders. That being said, assuming that U.S. 60 is correct, we would argue that there is, in fact, new information that has come to light in the time since the original amended order was entered as the analysis that the financial advisor and the debtors claimed to know to those that undertook revealed the realization that the vast majority of these parties likely are not creditors. We would argue this. So, first, we would argue that there has been a change in the situation and new information has come to light. And further, we would argue that there is a substantial hardship that can befall this estate after this order. And we would argue that it satisfies under those grounds as well. Let me ask you, did at any time the company try to serve from its domain, from an email address that obviously if that is, in fact, their course of dealing, did they ever try emailing from that domain? I don't believe. I mean, I understand it might have been unusual, so. I don't believe the company did attempt service from its domain. However, I would note that all addresses were received from the company. And, again, the company was agreeing with creditors, required creditors to keep, excuse me, with counterparties, required counterparties to keep their email addresses up to that date. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, you may not file any papers in connection with this. Did Your Honor obtain a brief argument from me? Yes, brief. Brief. Robert Stock from Brown Rubnick on behalf of the committee. 
It's a threatening situation that we find ourselves in right now, Sister Vivian, and, I, and thank you for allowing me to speak because this is big. And the key to all of this, I think, Your Honor, and that's a question, I think fairly bluntly, is the sort of contextualization of this issue on notice. We have a couple of different issues now on notice, and so I'm sort of worried about it. So I, I just wanted Your Honor to allow me. I remember Malone in law school when the Williams of Time has started cited since. It's a bit of a dated case. 2002L talks about publication notice as applying in bankruptcies as well. We did both here, email and publication notice. But, but forget that for a moment, Your Honor, because I think we've forgot what this case is somehow in this discussion. Okay? This is a company that does not make widgets. It was a depository company for digital assets, and it stopped doing that a really long time ago. It ceased doing business, and a receiver was appointed per Nevada law and Nevada system in June of 2023. Kaput. Done. What happens then? People who had deposited digital currencies with the company have been standing around saying, when do I get my currencies back? This is not a situation where some AR department lost a bill of lading and didn't get a notice to go figure it out in the manila folder lost in some far-off file cabinet. These are people who are sitting around saying, I want my money back. Please give it to me. How much notice do you think you really have to give under that circumstance to people who are otherwise self-motivated to say, I'd like my money back, please? Right? This whole argument confuses or conflates this Chapter 11 case to virtually every other one we've done in this court and all the other bankruptcy courts around the country because we don't make anything. We don't do anything. We're just trying to give people their money back. And we've been doing that for a really long time. That is the context by which notice needs to be reasonably calculated for the purposes by which we're trying to go forward here today. Publication is more than enough, but I've been doing enough crypto cases over the last year to kind of know a couple things. And I think Your Honor could take judicial notice of the entire case record on this one. People don't rely on U.S. mail in the cryptocurrency industry. They communicate with each other by electronic means, Mosco and Slack and email. And if, in fact, you went ahead and you dotted the I that's being requested right now and sent U.S. mail to these people, my presumption is they won't read it because that's not how this industry moves. That, too, is the context by which we have to evaluate stopping everything right now over the dotted I because the rule says, other than 2002L, that we should be sending things by mail. Electronic mail is how this industry operates. If it fails because they don't want to receive the email, that's not the debtor's fault. It's still fine. It's just probably not really a creditor, as the debtor is saying, that they're getting spam notes. So are we really going to stop this case over the notion that the electronic mail, the preferred way that the industry communicates, in a situation where people are sitting around waiting to get their money back and there is no situation of the failed bill of lading that was lost in the manila folder, are we going to stop it over that? Respectfully, Your Honor, that is the context of Mullane. That is more than sufficient with what's been done today. Anything further? No, thank you. Anything further? I'm going to take this under advisement. We take a lunch break. I'll rule after lunch. I think we can move ahead. Um, 
with the claim issues. Good morning, Your Honors. For the record, Jake Dumbeck with Concernment Law and Emory Council for the debtors and debtors in possession in these Chapter 11 cases. I will be taking up item numbers 13 and 14 on the amended, on the second amended agenda. And if there's time before the lunch break, also item number 16, regards motion for post-petition financing. So I understand timing might be getting tight to take up that one beforehand. With respect to the claims objection, for context, Your Honor, around the bar date, the debtors received a large number of claims for which they had basically zero information. And in connection with the 3018 motion that Your Honor already granted, the concern was an outsized impact on the voting results. Folks that we did not know really who they were, did not have records of, the concern was that this could materially affect the voting in an adverse way. So stemming from that, the debtors, in connection with their advisors, undertook an extensive evaluation of the proofs of claims that were filed, as well as trying to reconcile those with the debtors' schedules and their books and records. That led to the filing of the debtors' first substantive omnibus objection to certain filed proofs of claim, which is located at document number 435, that is the sealed version, as well as a redacted copy located at docket number 436. In connection with the first omnibus objection, attached as Exhibit A was a proposed order sustaining the objection, and attached as Exhibit B was the declaration of William Murphy from M3 Advisory Partners LP, the debtors' financial advisor. In his declaration, Mr. Murphy outlined the process and review the debtors conducted to reach that conclusion. Mr. Murphy is in the courtroom and is available to answer any questions. At this time, I would move Mr. Murphy's declaration into evidence. Does anyone object to the admission of the Murphy declaration into evidence? I hear no one. I see no one on Zoom. Thank you, Your Honor. Before I get into the relief that we're seeking, we did receive a number of responses, both formal and informal, to the first omnibus objection. The debtors were able to resolve some of those. We were not able to resolve all of them. And as I will explain later, we are going to seek to withdraw with respect to the unresolved ones for a later date for reasons that I will explain. Well, you know what? I think I should interject here because I have substantial issue with the first omnibus claim objection. Sure. First of all, I want you to be aware that we have local rules that govern claim objections. And first of all, Local Rule 3071E3D requires that the exhibits, the claim objections, be alphabetical. Last name of claimant or the name of the entity. This exhibit is not in alphabetical order. Local Rule 3071F provides that an objection, which is based on substantive grounds, not contain more than 100 claims. Exhibit 1 has 482 claims. Exhibit 2 has 93 claims. And Exhibit 3 has 86 claims. That's 661 claims in one claim objection. The claim binder that was provided to the court is redacted. 
We can't even read claim names to correspond them to the people. The electronic claims have identification numbers. It's a PC number, PC followed by a number, which is not the claim number of the proof of claim. So we can't even review these claims without being able to track the proof of claim numbers. Each claim, some of these don't have a proof of claim number. They just have a PC claim. Others don't have a claimant name on them. So importantly to me, what was served on claimants? Because I have no idea when I look at this claim objection how I find myself in here if I'm a claimant. So taking each of those in turn, and again, apologies for our inadvertence and frankly not being diligent in our process. Taking each of those in turn, with respect to Exhibit 1 and the large numbers that you mentioned there, I think a large part of that is born out of the fact that with respect to a number of the claims that are really attached to the back of them, if the judge will notice, many, many of those are filed by, yes, different individual names, but they're all also located at the exact same address and filed on or about within several days of each other. And if the court will also notice, the amounts asserted in those proofs of claim are just below the convenience class amount that is in the debtor's proposed plan of amended plan. And those claimants, creditors within that class, are entitled to a 70% distribution outright. So yes, we recognize that while we did not follow the local rule exactly to the letter, given sort of the large, what we suspect are not potentially valid claims and filed for maybe some other reason as well, in the rush of a judgment call, we decided to include them all right there on the exhibit just for completeness so the court could really see the situation that we are trying to assess and dig through. With respect to the binders that were delivered, you know. Well, I want to know importantly, before I can go anywhere, because we're back to a due process issue here. I understand the importance of getting this case through. I appreciate all of that, okay? But what I want to know is what did these claimants get so I can determine whether or not they even had notice of a claim objection to object? Because some of these things, when I look at them, I can't tell. If I got it, I don't know what the claimant got if they can find themselves in here. Did they get this entire document electronically like what I received? I don't know electronically how many gigabytes this would be, but did they get a five-volume document? No, Your Honor. Our understanding is that they received the first omnibus objection with the unredacted version with the exhibits attached to them, notifying them that there was an objection to their proof of claim. So did they just get their, did they get the objection with their proof of claim specifically, like customized? Or did they get this objection with everybody's and then they had to electronically go through it and find where their claim was? Your Honor, I'm not sure. Can you repeat that? 
So I just want to make sure I have this correctly because this to me is a gating issue. Okay, so, so you sent the whole objection. Is that correct? And then a separate email? We specified the objection proper. Without the exhibit? Without the exhibit or with, with just, that, just with that exhibit, no claims attached. With the exhibits and then in the email pointed out exactly where we were objecting, where they, they could find themselves. Okay, so, so, so the objection was sent. Let's just walk through this. So you sent the objection. You sent Exhibit A, which is a proposed order, and then you sent the no liability claims chart and then the other two exhibit charts. That's it. And then a separate email or same email was sent saying, Here's what? Here's where you can find yourself on the exhibit. Please have notice we're objecting to your claim. You can find it on this exhibit at this line. So was it a link to it? How, how did they get to the exhibit itself? I believe. Like did it say exhibit A chart page five or something like that? Okay. I mean, this is another reason our local rule also requires that you attach to back a claim objection, a chart that indicates the claimants where they can find their claim within the exhibit. The court has been through every one of these claims. But I'm very concerned about process here, and frankly, it's a pretty blatant rejection of a local rule. Again, our apologies, Your Honor, um, is to us, we definitely were not as careful or as diligent as, as the local rules are. With respect to the, the binders that were delivered to court, um, our understanding is we had provided the unredacted copies to our servicer in that regards. Um, apparently in, in the line of communication, it, you know, one copy that was not supposed to be in there um, ended up being the one that, that was printed off and, and delivered to the court. Well, how, did you get any rejected emails on the claim objection? Not as far as I know, Your Honor. Um, and to that end, you know, we did receive responses from uh, several of the claimants who claimed we did object to. Uh, so our understanding is that, you know, to an extent, the process did work and that the affected creditors did receive notice. Does U.S. trustee want to be heard on this?
Thank you, Your Honor. Joseph Cudi for the United States Trustee. Again, it comes back to also the failures of the Bargate notice. Again, that's the second, Mr. Carpook's declaration. That refers to parties that did not get the Bargate notice. Well, if they don't get Bargate notice, they're not bound. Right. You're only as good as the notice you get. Yes, Your Honor. Again, I have to confess that, you know, that was something that I missed as well, the not complying with the local rule, and I'll try to be a little more diligent with that with the court. Thank you. Okay. With respect to the Bargate notice, I mean, these folks are the people that did submit the proof of claim. Understood. As the court noted, there were a large number of them as well, too. So our understanding is that these folks did receive the Bargate notice, they submitted the proof of claim, and that's the means with which we communicated with them, as well as at the address or contact information that they provided in their proof of claim form. Are there any of the claimants on the phone today to be heard with respect to this motion, this claim objection, excuse me? Yes, ma'am, I'm here. Yes, Your Honor. Can you identify yourself, sir? Yes, Your Honor. My name is Shyam Sundar, and I am on docket number 529, 530, and 531. Okay, thank you, sir. Is there anyone else? Your Honor, it's Martin Beeler from Covington & Burling for ZAP Solutions, a creditor. And I want to say the debtor, we reached out about potential problems with service or late service of the objection, and they've been good enough to adjourn the hearing on our claim. Okay. To let you know, you know, in terms of the issues that have been discussed today, no one that my client received a particularized email. They looked into this. They received a printed, you know, a hard copy notice that appeared to identify a different individual claimant and not my client. So that's the extent of the notice that we're able to provide any info on here. Okay, thank you, Mr. Beeler. Do you have a copy of a sample email that was sent? Your Honor, we can get one. We're coordinating right now. Okay. Why don't we take a break for a half hour, let you coordinate getting an email, and then we'll come back and hear the rest of the case. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.
um, and we'll reconvene at quarter after noon, okay? We will take a um, later lunch break, but I wanna, I wanna get the information on this very clear before we proceed further, okay? So we're gonna stand in recess, thank you.
afternoon. Please be seated. Okay, let's proceed with the first first claim objection, and I'll see where I am after I hear some of it. For the record, Jake Dumbeck with McDermott Warren Emery, counsel for the debtors and the debtors in possession. So just to circle back on some of the issues that we left off with, we received customized emails from Stratto, the claims and noticing agent. We forwarded some of those to Chambers. Did Your Honor have a chance to review those or see those by chance? I did get one. Okay. And maybe when you put your witness on, he can actually go through this for the record. Yes. We have Brian Kepler here, and he is ready and willing to testify. So that would be helpful. I'm going to cede the podium to my colleague, Rick Bevin. Okay. Thank you. And just for the claimants who are on Zoom, you'll have your opportunity to speak as we move forward. I didn't want you to think when I called on you earlier that was your only opportunity. Your Honor, Joseph Evans on behalf of the debtors. Good afternoon. Your Honor, Mr. Carpenter has previously sworn in. I don't know if he has to do it again, but he's sworn in. No. You are still under oath, sir. Yes, sir. Mr. Carpenter, did Stratto handle the service of the claims objection? We did. How was the claims objection served? Each individual claimant was served by email. That email contained a link to the redacted document online maintained on Stratto's docket, as well as the customized information relating to their proof of claim was embedded within the body of the email itself. And we emailed them at the email address that was listed on their proof of claim, and then within that body of that email indicated what claim number was being objected to. So the emails used to serve the claims objection were the same emails used by the claimants when they filed the objection. Is that right? That is correct. And in the body of the email, you said it contained a hyperlink? It contained a hyperlink to the docket number, the omnibus objection that was available online at Stratto's case website. And did the body of the email contain a claim number? Yes, it did. And when you clicked on the link and you went online, there was a long list of claim numbers, and that would correspond to the claim number that was in the cover email? That's correct. Was there any description in the cover email of a claim amount? Yes, I believe that information was contained within the email. And in the body of the cover email, there was also a modified claim amount, wasn't there? That's correct. So if there was an objection to a claim or a deduction of a claim amount, that was embedded in the body of the email? That is correct. Were there any reasons provided in the body of the email for the modification of the claim amount from claims amount to the modified claim amount? Yes, there was a short paragraph describing the basis for the objection. 
So a claimant that received this rejection in the body of the email will have the reduced claim amount and the reason for the reduced claim amount. Is that right? That is correct. For the service of the claim objection, we'll talk first on this claim objection. Do you have this non-deliverable email issue that we've had talked about previously? I am not aware of any undeliverable emails with respect to the first omnibus claim objection. I have nothing further. Does anyone wish to cross-examine the witness? Let me ask for those on Zoom. Because claimants who are pro se can appear by Zoom. Is there anyone on Zoom who wish to cross-examine the witness? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Sir, can you identify yourself? Yes. My name is Shyam Sundar Aswadhanarayanan, and I'm on docket 529, 530, and 531. Okay. Did you have questions for the witness? I do have a question, a brief question, as to why the initial notices that I received were going spam when previously when I had corresponded with the debtors, none of them would go into spam. It's only the court notices that would go into my spam and nothing else. Is there an explanation for it? Your Honor, I object to lack of foundation for this particular witness as to the spam. That's an individual email provider or recipient issue, right, as to why they would, you know, mark one email spam and a different email as not spam. Okay. Thank you. Sir, is there anything else for the witness? That's all I have, Your Honor. Okay. You will still get a chance to speak, sir. But I just want – is there anyone else who wish to cross-examine the witness? I have a question for the witness. There was a comment made earlier about wrong information being sent to the wrong claimant, like the wrong claimant being referenced in an email. What type of procedure did you have in place for ensuring that the correct claimant was identified with an email? Are you familiar with that situation? I'm not familiar. I've had – we were attempting to look into it based upon the comment earlier, and I didn't have enough time to investigate it. Generally speaking, right, like our emails are, you know, effectively like a mail merge, right? And so you have, you know, a full omnibus objection list where it has email address tied to all of the data, and then that information is merged into a custom email that is, you know, sent to the individual claimant. So if I could stop you there. So the email that – sample that I was provided with, what you're telling me is the individualized claimant information is an automated process? It's manual in that it is – the file is prepared manually by, you know, Stredo or the debtors or financial advisors, right? And then when that, you know, 
essentially is a mail merge, similar to Microsoft Word or you know Excel to Word, but it's all merged within within the email itself. So, um, you know, we I'm not aware of any issues with respect to you know the merge of that data. And the data that was set forth in the email, it is, am I correct that it is essentially exhibit the extracted exhibit one information with respect to that particular claimant? That is correct, Your Honor. Okay. I just saw somebody appear on my screen. Are you, I think you might answer this, but I just want to make sure, are you aware other of anyone other than the reference made at this morning's hearing about notice or a mix-up with the claimant? I am not aware of any mix-up. I have no further questions. I, I do. Actually, I'm sorry. I have one more question. So if a claimant files four claims in this case, did they get four separate emails? They did. Okay. Thank you. I don't. Is anyone else wish to cross the witness? You're excused, sir. Thank, Thank you, Your Honor. Trust has your money, go talk to Prime Trust about it. Um, 
we've only really found out this information very, very recently. Um, so several of the responses, the first omnibus objection we received uh, concerned confidential claimant number four for proof of claim 280, confidential claimant number five uh, for proof of claim 876, confidential claimant number six for proof of claim 610, uh, Mr. Sindar uh, for proof of claim 239, uh, Lasya Narayanan, uh, proof of claim 240, James Hoffman, who filed a response at document number 570 as with respect to proof of claim 283, and James Hawford uh, filed a response at docket number 572 concerning proofs of claim 247 and 248, uh, and one more, apologies. Uh, Mr. Scott Mason, who filed a response at docket number 570, and that is with respect to proof of claim 1385. Since filing the objection and receiving those responses from the um, monocompetent claimants, uh, the debtors received additional information that requires further investigation. Uh, specifically, the reason we objected is because based on the debtor's books and records, it just reflected sort of an, an account with monocompetent as well as you know individual lines that just had under the ledger, you know, my constant. Uh, we had those balances at zero dollars. So the debtor's understanding was that they were not liable and that there really wasn't a contract with any of those individuals. Based on the information and documentation submitted with respect to each of the my constant claimants, uh, that appears that it, that may not be the case. And again, we really only found out about this as the deadline approached to respond to our claim objections. Um, so for that reason, we have proposed that we withdraw those objections without, pre without prejudice um, with respect to these my constant claims, just because we really need to develop a deeper understanding of the relationship between prime trust and my constant, as well as sort of what the further investigation into those facts uh, will ultimately entail. Have you discussed that approach with the claimants? We did reach out to them. Um, several, of, a couple of them did agree to, uh, well, initially we proposed to adjourn, and several of them were agreeable to that, other were not. And based on the information that we have, and clearly there just needed to be more of an investigation, uh, we determined that it was in the best interest just to withdraw without prejudice at this point. Okay, well, let me ask you, as I reviewed these exhibits, there are a couple other My Constant claimants identified. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> what are you going to do with those? Are they also going to be Yeah, we can put them in the same uh, bucket? Yeah, we'll, we'll put them in the same bucket as well. Does anybody, um, and can you tell me those, if you go off the agenda, if you can tell me which ones we're talking about. Again, I just want to make sure I got them all.
13, lowercase f, lowercase g, mm -hmm. lowercase i, lowercase k, lowercase l, lowercase m, those individuals, our understanding is that only four of them voted for the plan, the others abstained, and that is why we filed the supplemental voting declaration this morning to reflect revised tabulations accounting for uh, those rejections, accounting for their votes being included. Okay, does anyone wish to be heard um, with respect to the debtor's proposal to withdraw its objection with respect to the mon my constant claimants, both the ones identified here today and others set forth on the objection? Your Honor, I would wish to be heard. My yes. name is Shamsun. You may be heard. Um, uh, and uh, so my response here is that the debtors contacted me yesterday through their counsel, and um, they said they wanted um, me to postpone the hearing to January the 17th. And I was not liable to that because of, of the simple fact that they gave me hardly any notice. It was just one day before, and I had tried to talk to them several times in the past. Uh, the issues have been ongoing for over one year right now with the debtors. And um, the CEO of, of, of the, the XC Prime Trust, Mr. Scott Purcell, had signed an agreement, uh, a forged agreement, like I, like, like I had noted in my response. And uh, we were not aware of it. And Mike Constant was not aware of it either. Uh, the reason um, for my objection is because um, they said that they have no record of me being on the ledger when in fact they had sent me statements with my name, the Prime Trust logo, and, and my Constance account number and with the transactions when I had filed a complaint to the Nevada uh, Financial Institutions Division against Prime Trust. So I'm not able to accept their claim that they, have my, they don't have my name on the ledger at all. Bear with us a second, sir. Uh, so, we, so we, our understanding is that ledger is, is with my constant. We do not have access to that ledger. Um, and again, this they were one as being one of the integrator customers. Um, you know, our information on our end just sort of reflected very vanilla with my constant line item. Uh, so who exactly, you know, these accounts were? Uh, and again this information coming out in response to the documents that, that they filed um, is the reason that we're seeking to withdraw, just because um, these agreements, you know, we were not aware of them. 
He indicated, Mr. Sundar indicated that there might be some issues with them. Again, these are all things that, that we need to vet uh, far more fully uh, before we can you know, begin to assess these claims. Sir, given what the debtor has represented today, and I understand that you were just contacted yesterday, um, do you have any objection? The debtors want to withdraw their objection without prejudice to bring it later so they can further investigate based on the information you've provided. I would be okay with that, Your Honor. Okay, sir. So your, um, your, the objection that's currently pending to your claim is going to be withdrawn without, without prejudice, meaning it could be refiled again in the future. But I would think in the meantime that there will be communication between you and the company or the debtor's counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you, sir, for participating. Is there anyone else who wishes to be heard with respect to the first omnibus claim objection? Okay, I have um, a couple of claim questions. So, uh, and just to put a finer point on the Mycoskin issue. Yes. Anything that happened with prior management, I think as we all know throughout the course of these cases, with prior management, active investigation, we are trying to preserve everybody's rights to you know, will be investigated and you know, conclusions brought forth. So just to preserve that at this juncture. Um, and happy to take up Your Honor's questions then. So to the extent that parties attach, and I think this is pretty much the my constant claimants, to the extent that they have attached agreements, um, that being in response to your the debtor's objections saying you have no books and records, you're going to go back and revisit those claims? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Claim number 339, which is Environmental Corporation of America, and I need to It attaches <coughs> um, an invoice to PrimeCore Technologies. So I'm curious, um, well, I, I need more information to rebut a books and records objection when, when the claimant's attached information. So I'm not sure how this can be part of your first omnibus. Yeah, Environmental Corporation of America. You have a copy. I'll ha I'm happy to show you oh, yeah. in the binder. Mm -hmm. No, I have one. Thank you. 
without sounding snarky, this is why we try not to put 600 of them in one objection, because it's really hard to manage. To the extent that there's any documentation um, dealing connection with that, you know, we can take that off as well. Um, and that was both from that suggestion. Claim number, oh, bear with me, 419 which is at tab 103. This says the creditor's name is Mike Constant, but it looks like it's actually Michael Fleming. Does this fall within the I Constant claim objections that are being adjourned? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. There are certain claims um, that I indicated. Um, the debtors, I mean, the claimants have attached prime trust agreements. And I don't know if you've had an opportunity to review those, but are they my constant claimants? You would have to go back and review closer. Yes, would you please? Thank you. May I approach? Yes, of course. Thank you. Do you have an extra copy of this? We do, Your Honor. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me.
excuse me. Is there anyone else who wishes to be heard with respect to the first omnibus objection to claims? Okay. Um, I would want to review this, um, but subject to my review, I'm going to enter it. But I, I do want to caution, and I think you guys um, probably already know this, but it is very important to me that the that practitioners comply with the rules, and, and particularly claim objections because it's to protect the claimants as well. And it's also a huge burden on the court, and this chamber's reviews claim objections. So I'm going to give you your, your get-out-of-jail card free on this one, um, but in the future, please comply with the local rules when dealing with claim objections, and if there is a reason you're not going to or can't, please file a motion asking for a waiver of the local rule rather than saying, we think these comply, but to the extent they don't, we ask for a waiver. Please do it in advance. So in the future, um, you know, please address the things we talked about, limitation of the rules, the alphabetical order. Make sure the court, when it comes to binders, gets the unredacted copy. So um, with that. Again, and not to belabor the point, a big part of this is disenfranchising, you know, legitimate creditors. And again, if I could direct the court to, you know, some of the later pages of Exhibit 1 regarding you know, the individual or more who submitted claims at this address in Waldorf, Maryland. Um, this is something that was really concerning to us from the from the yeah, actually that would have been very beneficial had that been included in the in the text of the objection. Um, because you kind of go blurry eyed once you start looking at six hundred claims. And so the focus, you know, frankly from our perspective, we don't look at claimant object uh, addresses. You know, we look at the merit of the claim and the claim numbers and that type of thing, so that would have been helpful, but I appreciate yes. your um, concern. Okay. Um, so I'll look at that when we break, but let's see if we can get through the next omnibus claim objection. I'd like to say that we are finished with claim objections, but we'll bear with, we have one more with the second omnibus claim objection. Uh, these are this is item number 14 on the Second Amendment agenda. Uh, sealed version is located at docket number 437. Uh, the, the redacted version is located at docket number 438. Uh, similar with the first objection, uh, attached are Exhibit A, which is the proposed order, along with the supporting exhibits. Attached is Exhibit B, with the declaration of William Murphy, with M3 Advisory Partners LP in support. Mr. Murphy is present in the courtroom uh, and is available to answer any questions that any party may have. Uh, at this point, I move Mr. Murphy's declaration into evidence. Does anyone object to the admission of the Murphy declaration into evidence? Okay, I hear no one. Uh, so the relief that we requested there uh, is with respect to, again, three categories of claims. The first category are the so-called duplicative claims asserted against the debtor, against any of the debtors for liabilities that are already covered by a corresponding claim. Uh, as set forth on Exhibit 1, debtors maintain that for this reason, uh, the duplicative claims should be disallowed, uh, and only the duplicative surviving claim column, that information, should survive. With respect to the second category, 
the so-called superseded claims. These are comprised of claims that have been amended, superseded by a subsequently filed proof of claim. Uh, as set forth on Exhibit 2, uh, the originally filed claim should be disallowed uh, and replaced with the amount set forth with respect to the surviving claim amount column. And last is uh, misclassified equity interest. Uh, this concerns proof of claim number 1277. Uh, the debtors determined that the claim represented by this proof of claim is actually not a claim, it's an equity interest. So we would just seek to reclassify that uh, appropriately. For these reasons, as more, as more fully set forth in the second omnibus objection and the Murphy Declaration, we request that the court sustain the second omnibus objection and enter an order substantially conformed with the Rivier Chapter 2. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the second omnibus objection to claims? Okay, I hear no one in the courtroom um, and no one on Zoom. I've reviewed the objection in the Murphy Declaration. I'm prepared to sustain the objection um, as to Exhibit 1, the duplicative claims, and Exhibit 3, the misclassified claims, and Exhibit 2, the superseded claims. But let me just caution again that Exhibit 2 was very difficult to review given the presentation of the exhibit. So I think we've said enough on that and we'll move forward. Understood, Your Honor. So depending how the court wants to proceed, the next item on the agenda that I propose to take up is the debtor's motion for post-petition financing. It is on an uncontested basis, so unless the court thinks that uh, there are a number of questions or clarifications, um, perhaps we can move through relatively uh, efficiently, uh, but I defer to you overall. Okay. Go ahead. As I said, uh, presenting item number 16 on the second amended agenda, the debtor's motion for post-petition financing. The DIT motion is located at docket number 523. Um, we're pleased to report, as I said, that we are here on a fully consensual basis to seek approval of the DIT facility uh, on a final basis pursuant to the terms of the proposed final DIT order located at docket number 585. Uh, I'd like to thank Mr. Studia, the U.S. Trustee's Office, and committee council for working with us through this process. Uh, we were able to resolve all the comments and questions that they had with respect to the dip order and the dip facility. Um, so we're here on a final basis on contested. Uh, before beginning the formal presentation, we have two witnesses in the courtroom. The first is Mr. Robert Winning from M3 Advisory Partners LP, the debtor's financial advisor. His declaration is attached to the dip motion as Exhibit B, docket number 523-2. It addresses, among other things, the necessity of the proposed DIP facility, the reasonableness of the terms, uh, and the reasonableness of the relief proposed thereunder. Mr. Winnie is present in the court and available to answer any questions the court or any parties may have. The second witness is Mr. Michael Ash from Chaos to Digital Partners, LLC, the debtor's investment banker. His declaration is attached to the debt motion as Exhibit C, docket number 523-3, and it addresses the robust marketing process the debtors undertook to enable to secure the debt facility. Uh, again, Mr. Ash is present in the courtroom, and he's available to answer any questions that the court or any party may have. At this time, I move to offer both declarations into evidence. 
Does anyone object to the admission into evidence of the winning declaration at docket number 523-3 or the Ash Declaration at docket number 523-3? I hear no one. The declarations are admitted. The original debt was filed, debt motion was filed at docket number 523, and as exhibited, it included the proposed final debt order, which was subsequently amended at docket number 585. The executed debt term sheet, which is attached to the proposed debt order as exhibit one. The debt budget, which is attached to the debt order as exhibit two. Mr. Winning's declaration and Mr. Ash's declaration. As indicated in those declarations and in the motion itself, we have obtained a commitment to fund a proposed $10 million debtor in possession financing credit facility that lays the foundation to ensure the wind-down debtor is appropriately capitalized following the effective date. We believe the evidence supports the debtor's decision to pursue the debt financing and to enter into it was made in the debtor's exercise of their sound business judgment and that the debtors could not obtain the proposed financing on equal or better terms from another source. And I think it's important to note that as reflected in Mr. Ash's declaration and Mr. Winning's, this is not only the best source of post-petition financing, it's actually the only source, really the only viable one that the debtors were able to secure. And that's important because Polaris, as my colleague Mr. Ash said earlier, is one of the debtor's largest creditors and is taking a significant credit risk in connection with this. And the reason is because I think, you know, when we were seeking additional sources of financing, folks were very reluctant to put forth any proposals because it reflects the nature of the debtor's assets. They were reluctant to move forward because it was unclear what sort of collateral package there would actually be. And again, the only party that was willing to step up and give us this lifeline was Polaris. I think the court has heard enough about the debtor's limited liquidity entering these cases and, you know, we thought we would be out of here with a much better result. But unfortunately, because of unexpected delays in the process, as well as other issues that popped up, the debtor's liquidity situation quickly became even more stressed when Polaris entered. So I think it's important to also note that although the debtor's liquidity situation is very dire and Polaris was the only option, the debt lender was willing to provide financing on pretty favorable terms to the estate. And there are a few that I want to highlight here for the court. The first is that the debt facility is interest-free for a period of time. The debt lender has agreed to provide the debt on an interest-free basis through the maturity date, so long as the debtors are not in continuing default. The debt lender has also agreed to take junior liens with respect to certain permitted liens that arise under applicable non-bankruptcy law, as well as with respect to certain collateral by the debtor's surety providers and certain security interests that may be held by BMO Harris Bank as the debtor's banking institution under the banking fee arrangements. The debt lender has also agreed to exclude the debtor's Gus Carter account from the debt collateral. That account is $1 million of collateral that the debtors were required to pledge to as part of receiving their Nevada trust charter. By agreeing to exclude that collateral from the account, the debtors were able to ensure compliance with their requirements under applicable Nevada state law and maintain their trust charter as well. 
there are no fees associated with the dip facility. So there's no commitment fee, no exit fee, uh, no sort of ticking fee or anything like that typically associated with the dip commitment. Finally, the dip also contains what's called the plan rollover election. So instead of requiring payment in full of all outstanding dip obligations at the maturity date, the dip lender has agreed to an alternative treatment. Specifically, in the event the debtors are unable to satisfy the dip obligations on or before the maturity date, the dip lender has agreed to roll those obligations sensibility into a quasi-exit facility and receive first, uh, first priority security interest on the wind down debtor asset. In doing so, the dip lender is providing the debtors with the flexibility to ensure that the wind down budget is appropriately funded. And to the interest point earlier, again, that rollover includes a 12 month interest holiday and even after interest begins to accrue on the dip loans, that interest rate of about seven and a half percent is quite reasonable, uh, especially one for distressed financing period and two in this uh, interest rate environment that we're in now. Now, I think something that we want to highlight here that, that is really important that we want to be fully transparent is the dip lender's commitment to provide the dip facility uh, did come with a condition that is relatively common in uh, post-petition financing. Um, it came with a release. Uh, so while not typically uh, you know, deemed controversial, as we detailed in the dip motion and the winning declaration, Plus was a customer of the debtors pre-petition. And in the 90 days preceding the petition date, Plus withdrew approximately $30.9 million from its account at Prime Trust while depositing approximately $150,000. So and again, those three withdrawals occurred in the 90 days preceding the petition date. And as I noted, a condition of the dip was the release of those claims. The debtor's release is appropriate based on the facts and circumstances here, uh, mainly because of the facts of these Chapter 11 cases, the beneficial terms that the dip lender is willing to provide credit on, the significant credit risk that the dip lender is taking in connection with these cases, uh, combined with expensive, potentially time-consuming litigation that would result, as well as potential viable defenses that Polaris has asserted it has and will defend aggressively. Let me, can I stop you there a second and sure. ask you a couple questions? One, what is Polaris priming? So that's a great question. Under the, the debtor's understanding is because we do not have your typical all asset pre-petition secured credit facility, that there really are no uh, valid pre-petition liens encumbering the debtor's assets. Uh, that is borne out by our you know, investigation and you know, due diligence process as well. However, Polaris was not willing to lend other than on a priming basis. So to the extent that there are needs out there, um, that you know, they are priming to that extent, again, our understanding is we don't believe that there are any. Uh, again, that is why there's certain language, language with respect to 552 waivers, again, to the extent applicable, um, those, those apply. Um, but overall, they were not willing to lend other than on a priming basis. And with respect to things that have already been pledged as collateral, like the surety collateral, uh, and the uh, any uh, property or assets uh, held by BMO Harris Bank that may be subject to their security interest, they're going to be taking and agreed to take a junior lien on those assets. Right, and those parties received notice. Yes. Okay. So it appears in this transaction that Polaris is settling its ownership issue. 
Is that without prejudice to other parties' arguments related to ownership? In that, so the, is the Polaris situation solely confined to Polaris yes. itself? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Does it have any collateral impacts? No, no. The, the, the facts here are solely con confined to the motion before the court and this proposed facility. Now, I'm more than happy to... Talk to me about the milestones. Yes. So as the court noted, the ship, the ship does <coughs> certain milestones that the debtors are required to meet. Uh, one of which has already occurred and hopefully one of which we are currently satisfying. Um, but the first is by December 8th, the debtor shall file the amended plan supplement to the amended plan that provides for certain information and documentation that conform in substance to agreeable to the acceptable to the ship lender. Um, we have met that milestone in connection with our various plan supplements that, that we have filed with respect to the plan administrator agreement, uh, identity of the plan administrator, identity of uh, the PCC litigation trustee and oversight committee there. Um, the second is by December 19th, the confirmation hearing shall have commenced. Shall hopefully once I turn the podium back over to Ms. Tandeskin, uh, we'll get there to the extent we have not already. And last is by December 27th, the court shall enter an order confirming the amended plan. So here, here's my question. What, what if the court doesn't amend the plan? What happens with this? I mean, what if the court doesn't confirm the plan? What happens with this debt? Uh, so in that situation. It, is, it, is the plan confirmation condition precedent to approval of the debt? It is not. So there, there, to, the, to that hypothetical, there is potentially a world where the court does not confirm the plan, but Polaris will be uh, obligated to fund under the conditions preceding uh, to the ship facility. Okay. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the dip? Trustee, committee, anyone? with the committee as well after Section 13 was picked up and discussed. Uh, we did have a say in this. Uh, we believe it's reasonable under the circumstances and have been in touch with them about the committee's perspective. No, thank you, Mr. Stark. <coughs> <coughs> okay. Anyone else wish to be heard? Okay, so. Uh, Your Honor, if I may, and again, Mr. Jake Dumbeck, the General Rural Emory for the debtors. Uh, there are two points I want to make uh, with respect to collateral and the property of the estate. Uh, the first is with respect to the collateral. Uh, given the, that this came about late in the game after the Swan agreement, the Swan license agreement that the court already approved mm -hmm. uh, was pretty much baked and we were just waiting for, for court approval there. Um, counsel for Swan reached out and requested that uh, we make a statement on the record uh, just to the effect that um, its own interest in the license agreement and certain terms that are under are protected uh, and that the dip lender is not seeking to interfere with those rights. So we were able to negotiate a statement on the record uh, that we'll read in now. Um, okay. The dip lender confirms that it's reviewed an unredacted copy of the license agreement between the debtors and Electric Olitas Inc. 
doing business as Juan Bitcoin and confirms that it will not exercise rights with respect to this collateral in a manner that will interfere with Swan's rights under the license agreement or Swan's exercise of its rights under section 5.4 of the license agreement. Uh, Council for the debt lender is in the room, so I don't want to speak for them, but they did confirm that they agree with this statement, uh, as well as also Council for Swan is here as well, to the extent the court would like confirmation from them. Does the dip lender consent to that? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm going to check to see what time it is. Uh, good afternoon. Ryan Bartley with Young Connolly on behalf of Polaris. Yes, we do confirm that uh, that reservation is correct. Okay, thank you. For the record, Jake Dumbeck. And then last point is that, you know, just really want to put a fine point on the court's question earlier. This is not resolved property estate issues. This is entirely new funding. This is solely confined to VSAC and this situation right here. Okay, thank you. Does anyone else wish to be heard? Okay, based on the facts as presented in the uncontroverted uh, winning declaration at docket 5233 and the uncontroverted ASH declaration at docket 5233, um, the debtors have demonstrated they don't have sufficient available sources of working capital and financing. Uh, the dip financing bridges the case to an exit, provides funding to preserve information, monetize assets, and preserve litigation pursuant to potential plan. Um, the proposed financing is the only available financing, and the terms of the dip facility are most favorable terms that are could secure and are fair and reasonable. Uh, the terms of the dip facility uh, were negotiated in good faith and no objections have been filed to the motion and informal comments have been resolved. Importantly, the creditors committee supports the relief here. So I'll enter the proposed order um, subject to a couple of questions on the form of order. <coughs> Does your honor have a copy? I do. Well, I'm working off of docket five 85. Yes, are you, referring, are you working off the red line or the green? I'm working off the red line. Perfect. And some of this just may be the speed of reading things and you all are a lot more familiar with these documents. But this order refers um, consistently to the term dip loan documents, and I never saw that as a defined term. I think the documents here were just referred to as a term sheet, but I don't know what dip loan documents are, and I might have just missed it. It's a process that's defined in the term sheet, and it's, it's really just the term sheet, the dip order, and the approved budget. Okay, all right. And those are the three. All right, thank you. Um, Paragraph one, now that I know what the dip loan documents are, okay, that's fine now that I understand exactly what we're talking about. 
paragraph five, this was just, I'm assuming this is negotiated between the parties, but in line five, in paragraph five, customary, redactions customary for this court. I don't even know what that means. Are we just saying reasonable redactions? I mean, I, as long as the parties understand what that means. Okay. On <clears throat> paragraph eight, um, we're talking about dip collateral, and the reference is made to all accounts in line five. And how does this interplay with customer accounts? Well, good question, and hopefully we have been able to sort of really address that. Um, in 10? Yes, you as well. We're happy to add even more additional clarifying language there that you know, this is not with respect to any of those property estate issues that are still undetermined. Yeah. Uh, or anything of that. Because well, I think what, um, so I assumed that that was the purpose of 10 mm -hmm. to address that issue. But then 10 calls me pause because I don't know how, I don't really know. <laughs> what it means the debtors have no obligation to characterize or seek adjudication when if the plan is confirmed 2.5 sets forth a mechanism and maybe I'm misreading these provisions or trying to merge provisions that shouldn't even be merged. Right. So I, I think it is a slightly too risky to sort of keep them separate in, in a way. Um, the, the new language from 10 came in uh, response to comments from the committee, and I really think that the intent there is to avoid a situation where the dip lender is, you know, in that universe that exists for a period of time before uh, the plan rollover occurs, right. where the dip lender is potentially trying to say, like, no, like, those, this type of collateral, this account looks funky. Um, you should lodge an objection or file some type of motion to adjudicate that issue to increase the collateral package. Um, I think that language, while maybe not as clear as it could have been, is really the intent of that. Your Honor, uh, oh, yes, thank I you. I just want to add um, one thing, and I might have misheard Mr. John Beck earlier. If we do the rollover, our liens actually go away. So the universe where we're in the plan account treatment protocol, we will have ceded our liens and we're just simply a senior creditor under the plan getting paid to prevent foreclosure. So in our view, there's a, hopefully a very short period of time where we actually are a secured creditor um, as opposed to a priority creditor under the plan. So if, if your concern is whether there's a conflict with the, the plan's provision for account treatment, we won't, we won't have collateral interest once the plan confirmer becomes effective because our liens go away and we just get a senior priority claim. Your Honor, Kirsten Axelrod, Brown Rodnick for the committee. May I be heard very briefly? Yes, of course. Um, the language that's being discussed, I believe, is taken directly from the term sheet. The debtor shall have no obligation uh, to friend in paragraph 10. And I, I believe it's being addressed unanimously here. It's a 
the, the debtor is already a person without the debtor. The debtor is really plan administrator, not a person with any particular decision as to what tax or address is going to go. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. I had a question about um, paragraph 21. And maybe this is what you were just addressing. Because I understood if the debtor couldn't satisfy the dip obligations on the maturity date, then the dip lender had agreed to the roll plan rollover treatment. Yes, and we thought we did that here, I believe, in paragraph 13, where we added, you know, in in response to the committee and in accordance with the treatment of dip claims as provided in the plan. Um, we can add clarifying language there to sort of reflect you know, that plan rollover um, concept as well to, to address that. Yeah, because it, it, it looks inconsistent to me. Yes, we'll add clarifying language there. And I'm assuming that the Polaris parties are defined in the term sheet. I didn't go back and double check. They are, Your Honor, and... I'm getting nods. Okay, so if you... Um, with Oh, I did have one other, and this is an easy question, but I'm just curious. So paragraph 3 talks about borrowing an original principal amount not to exceed $10 million. Is it anticipated there will be additional borrowings thereafter? Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Terrific. All right. So if you'll get that um, black line and uploaded, we'll get it entered. And you know, just to confirm too, in the dip motion and in I believe Roman at one, uh, there's a bit additional kind of clarification there. Uh, of $10 million and such additional amounts uh, to the extent that fees are paid in kind. So any sort of you know, uptick in the principal amount is going to be as a result of picking those uh, reasonable attorney's fees from the defender. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Let's, let's take a break until 2.30 and then we'll come back. Let me ask, um, with respect to confirmation, are there any witness time constraints? I mean, I'm sure everybody wants out. <laughs> but, and, I, and I, let me just say to the parties that I very much appreciate the process of making sure that we adhere to a due process and, and procedures. And so to the extent that I have questions, I very much appreciate you taking the time to look into things and respond, even if it requires a little bit of delay in the hearing. Well, Your Honor, we're so happy to work with LG, and I'd like to personally apologize for the extreme objection when we had the whole rule body that I can tell that. you all have plenty to do. I, I appreciate that. I will do a better job of explaining it in the future. 
So um, do we have witness concern? No, we do not. Okay. So we'll start back up at 2.30. Okay. Terrific. Thank you.
Please be seated. 
We're back on the record in Prime Court Technologies, case number 2311161. I'm sorry to interrupt you. If you are on Zoom, please mute your line. Thank you. Yes. There was a gating thing I wanted to address before we started as well today. Okay. Um, bear with me a second. I'm just looking at the detailed statement that's been provided. Okay, is the claimant online? Yes, I am. Could you identify yourself, please? And do you have a camera? Can you be shown on Zoom? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, one second. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you for appearing today. Oh, yes, thank you so much. Um, yes, my last name is Jane, C-H-I-N-G, and my first name is Y-I-J-O-U. That's correct, the dollar value. And do you have any objection to us adjusting your vote to reflect that? 
Uh, no objection. Thank you. Oh, so, so ma'am, just to confirm that your vote is in U.S. dollars of $16,757.76? Yes, for um, Bitcoin. That is correct. Okay. Uh, and then there was a separate claim for Ethereum, which is, uh, uh, I think, $15,352.14 in U.S. dollars? Okay, and that's how you wish to vote your claim in those dollar amounts? Ma'am, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Oh, yes. And you are voting in favor of the plan, is that correct? Um, I don't believe I submitted a rejection, so yes. Um, I don't... It was a vote to reject. Oh, I'm sorry, it was a vote to reject the plan, I'm sorry. Is that accurate? Yeah, yes. Okay. I do not. Does anyone else? Let me ask, um, ma'am, if the debtors um, were asked to file with the court a stipulation that just indicated that your vote was in U.S. dollars that we just stated on the record. Would you sign that stipulation for purposes of the record? Um, sorry, could you repeat that? Yes, if, if the court asked the debtors to file a stipulation indicating what your claim is in dollar amount, that it was supposed to be in dollars, would you sign that stipulation? Well, Yes, okay, thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, okay. Yes, before we even started today, I, um, wanted to rule on the creditor matrix because I think this is a gating issue after this afternoon. Um, the evidence here today and previously before the court established that the debtors communicate with their customers via email agreements um, or via email. An agreement stated that future communications could be by email and no paper documents would be sent to customers. As a result, this court previously uh, permitted email service. The debtors established they made or commercially reasonable efforts to serve consistent with its business practices and the agreements between the parties, but some email has been returned, just like in some cases regular mail is returned. The evidence showed that after receiving undeliverable email and analyzing the email service and assessing service issues, the debtors determined to service via mail those parties they identified as creditors in their statements and schedules. The debtors determined based on their analysis not to serve the remaining customers by mail, some of whom they do not have e um, mail addresses. The court thinks these efforts were commercially reasonable in light of the matrix order and this industry. Due process requires notice reasonably calculated under the circumstances. 
I am considering the debtor's motion as a supplemental motion under 105 30, Bankruptcy Rule 3018 and Bankruptcy Rule 2002 and not a motion to amend. I am not willing to vacate a prior order under these circumstances, particularly when mail service was made in part. Under the specific facts of this case and the evidence presented to the court, I will enter a supplemental order waiving the requirement that the debtor serve by mail those parties the debtors established through uncontroverted testimony were not creditors or for whom the debtors do not have a mail address. This ruling is without prejudice to the parties who may later challenge notice. All their arguments are reserved. That said, the relief you receive is only as good as the notice you provide so that it, to the extent a party does not receive notice, it will not be bound. So I'd like to ask the trustee and the debtor to confer and submit a formal order. And with that, we can proceed for with confirmation. Okay, that would be great. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Um, Mr. Rice's declaration speaks to the terms of the plan, including that they were the product of extensive arm's length good faith negotiations and represents a sound exercise of the debtor's business judgment. Uh, it also speaks to the justification for the relief that the locations serve regular use and injunction provisions, um, including the proposed statement of the released employees, um, as well as all of the ways that the plan satisfies uh, the applicable elements of section 
record with the evidentiary record of the hearing. As noted, each of these declarants are present in the courtroom and available for cross-examination if the need arises. Okay, does anyone object to the Weiss Declaration in support of confirmation at docket number 558, the Murphy Declaration regarding best interest test at docket 559, or the Karpuk voting declaration at docket number 624? Okay, I hear no one. Does anybody wish to cross-examine any of the witnesses regarding the content of their declarations? I hear no one. You may proceed. Thank you. I'd also note that Harris filed a brief in support of confirmation and approval of the disclosure statement on a final basis, and that appears at docket number 557. If it's acceptable to the court, I will commence my presentation on the final approval of the disclosure statement. Yes. Your Honor, approves the disclosure statement on a conditional basis on October 6th, a little less than two months into the cases that we entered last April. At the conditional approval hearing, several parties objected or raised concerns with respect to the disclosures in the disclosure statement that was going to be solicited, and specifically those disclosures relating to the debtor's ongoing investigation and what we're calling the account fee interviews, account fee disclosures. To address these concerns, the debtors committed to supplementing their disclosure statement prior to the December 6th deadline, and specifically one week prior. And on November 28th, they filed this supplement, which appears at docket number 487. The supplement included the following additional information. Updates with respect to the termination of the debtor's sale process and its pursuit of a liquidation transaction under that Tahoe insurance. Descriptions of these case updates and filings, including retained objections and debtors, the debtor's motion seeking authority to enter into the forum license agreement and the district release. And it had updates with respect to the debtor's investigations and the status of looking into property estate issues, including the settlement with CP Labs described, and also the debtor's filing of the foreign currency sale motion for trust holding. The endeavor to include a more user-friendly breakdown of exactly who of the debtor's employees and directors and officers, current and former, who are being released and to what extent under the plan. So we created two charts that we filed as part of that. The first chart showed the treatment under the version of the plan that was already solicited. The second version included the updates that had since made to the plan and introduced the concept of pull-through cities and affiliates. And in addition, we filed the revised liquidation analysis on December 1st. Because all of the parties who raised objections at the conditional approval hearing, those objections were carried forward to this hearing, we reached out to those parties to see whether the updates, the supplement that we provided, resolved their concerns or anything that we did in return. So it's my understanding that all of these, and all of these were resolved, but for a joinder of plaintiffs to the disclosure statement, objection that CP Labs filed, CP Labs' objection has since been withdrawn. We contacted Mr. Newman, but he was unwilling to withdraw or mark his objection as resolved. So I will ask if Mr. Newman 
Is Mr. Newman? I, I am, Your Honor. I am right here, Your Honor. Okay. Would you like to proceed with your objection? Oh, yes, Your Honor. I don't plan on doing much. I'm on video. I'm not in the presence of the court. So I just wanted to make sure that the issues which are before the court, my client is Coinbits. Coinbits is one of the earliest on-ramp. I think it's the earliest on-ramp for Bitcoin investing, Bitcoin BTC. My client's users, there's about 4,500 of them. And so those customers each have agreements with debtor. Actually, my client also has an account with the debtor as well as other agreements. The concerns that I've had, really, I'm looking forward to confirmation today. The current concerns that I have is that the ongoing investigation, we still don't know, is it ongoing? Has it concluded? We know that there are deals being cut like with Tiki Labs. And I know there was an analysis done probably with regards to foreign currency. My clients, all they have are Bitcoin. And Bitcoin today, I mean, it's about $44,000 a coin. So we're the substantially, my users are the holders of substantially the largest portion of Bitcoin. But I don't know because we've never seen the analysis done. I'm just hoping that the debtor is prepared right out the gate to deal with BTC issues. Because I know that the most important thing in this case, actually, is not what the debtor is doing. But the debtor has a piece of software. It's called Fireblocks. And Fireblocks, and I'm not a paid advertisement for Fireblocks, but it's a key grid, a key technology that's key to making sure that individual ownership can match up to specific digital assets. And it's an important, very expensive agreement. I think it was just added to the list of agreements that's going to be assumed. It's a seven-figure cure amount. And so the longer this case goes, especially holding Bitcoin, where there's really no basis to continue to hold that Bitcoin. And if the client, if the debtor has already done their analysis, it should be pretty clear that that Bitcoin should be then back to the owners of it. That was the whole purpose of this process. I'm just hoping now that the procedures aren't going to go out artificially for 120 days. I think BTC being the most valuable digital asset. In fact, it's the recognized currency of El Salvador. That this specific currency that's so valuable needs to be dealt with right away, right out the gate. It's too much risk for the estate to hold. It's too expensive for them to continue to hold under Fireblocks, which is critical to the success of this case. And, you know, the sooner they get these assets to holders, the better. And this is not talking about fiat. It's talking about BTC. I've had communications with the parties here. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew, and it's very important, that even though we don't have full disclosure as to the analysis that was done, it must have been done already. So I'm hoping the debtor is ready to go 
and get these digital assets out to owners like what was what they wanted to do in Nevada and and that I think it's it's time to do it the sooner they can do it the better your honor so with that okay yes go ahead I'm sorry I interrupted you oh no just with that I think that we're just getting the full disclosures now the the procedures were only closed just recently I think there were just changes recently with regards to sharing of costs and in light of all the moving pieces and parts I just wanted to hold out my objection and make sure and clear that there's a lot of incentive for this estate to deal with Bitcoin first the most valuable digital asset here where people have not been able to exercise their property rights for for eight months now so with that your honor I'm fine with having my objections resolved I just I think it was an important opportunity for me to express the concerns I think a lot of customers and our customer base I appreciate you wanted an audience and I think you got it today I think that everyone has heard you mr. Newman so if I understand you correctly your objection to the disclosure statement is resolved yes your honor I look forward to resolving the the return of digital assets as promptly as we can with the in a post confirmation world okay terrific thank you very much mr. Newman thank you so much your honor mr. Newman I hope that satisfies your inquiry this afternoon thank you your honor and I do appreciate all the time that was spent by counsel in this case thank you have a great afternoon okay I will rule when I will it once and if you would like a cough drop help yourself welcome to the contagious courtroom you're welcome anyone else please help yourself
able to work able to vote. Um, there are no votes in Class B, so under the plan, EPA, there's a, a vacant class, and there wasn't counted in, in the tabulation of votes. Class four is our convenient class, also entitled to vote on time. Um, as set forth in the, the voting declaration, the Garrett College of Voting Agents will distribute solicitation packages, ballots, confirmation hearing notice, supplemental confirmation hearing notice um, to the voting classes. And they also sent a notice of non-voting status to the non-voting classes. And there are affidavits on file at docket number Does anyone object to admission of the affidavits into the admission into the record? Please make. All right, they're admitted. <coughs> um, I'd like to now go over the opt-out procedures that we included. Uh, the plan provides for consensual third-party review in favor of the relieved party. And better provide a holder of the claims and interest with notice of third-party review, as well as the procedures for opting out and several ways. Each ballot distributed voting classes and period in full conspicuous text on the first page of the ballot. Notice that the plan contains third-party releases, advising parties of the consequences of failing to opt out, and directing the voting classes to the particular space on the ballot where they can exercise that right to opt out. With a check, with a, with a box that we checked. The confirmation hearing notice, also in conspicuous bold text, included the full text of the release and explain the consequences of failing to opt out again. Um, and to ensure the non-voting classes also had an opportunity to opt out of the releases, we included an opt-out procedure in the notice of non-voting status. And in, again, in bold conspicuous text, we included the full text of the release exculpation and injunction provisions and explained the consequences again of failing to opt out and included not only the same opt-out box that voting classes received in the ballot, but also inform them that they can also file an objection to the releases and opt out in that manner. And an instruction with respect to checking the box, which was to merely return it to the voting agent. And there are parties who avail themselves of this procedure, both of these procedures. Um, in addition, the publication notice um, included bold conspicuous language of the assistance of the, the releases and exculpation provision and injunction provision. Um, turning now to the voting results. There are five classes of claims entitled to vote, as I just mentioned, all of the subclasses in three, and class four, the convenience class three. And we disregarded three C because it had no votes. Um, the, the most recent, called the second supplemental voting declaration. This is 624, right? Yes. Okay. Um, the four classes that actually cast votes voted overwhelmingly in favor of the plan, in both number and amount. Um, the tweeted voting results set forth in the declaration, um, which removes the 45 microns end user 
what it increased, sorry, it increased the increases that we can use from a clean assessment unit. Um, and also the, the environmental claim that doesn't even really, really does, doesn't matter because it's, it just, but we also hooked them up with a clean assessment. It was team number three through nine, not just the new job, not the new job. All right, I'm gonna have to step back a minute. So untreated is absolutely what you received, mm -hmm. okay? And then treated in docket 624 reflects specifically claims that were addressed earlier today. Yes, or for the 3018 motion. Um, and we added back in the, my cost claims with the adjustment of the claims And that's reflected in the untreated results. Proceeded. The treated results do not include that claim. We asked right. to remove it. But the untreated results yeah. include it. So were there any other modifications, or I don't want to say modifications, um, treatments made in class 3A other than that treatment? No, no. What a, what about class D? Class D. We didn't make, I don't believe we made any adjustments on class D. Okay, and class C were, is vacant. Class B. So the only modifications that were made in the treated results are modifications that were based on court order. Yes. There were no, I just want to make sure because I, I was troubled by the prior voting ballot to the extent that I didn't truly understand a $400 million claim. And I don't believe that debtors have the authority to unilaterally address claims voting within a voting ballot. So I was concerned, but um, based on the hearing we had earlier today and council's representation, 
so that the only modifications to 3B are those that have been court ordered. Yeah. Um, we are happy to add $440 million claim back into. Well, I, I would just revert back to yes, exactly. the, so if I wanted that analysis, I just go to the first column. And I appreciate the debtor's point with respect to that claim, um, but Understood. regardless, yeah. it's accepted. Right. Um, we, we absolutely understand we unilaterally do not have authority to do that, which is why we just wanted to bring it to your attention. Right. Uh, wanted to clarify the record in case this comes up later. Well, and I do appreciate that there are several judges on the on this bench who very much appreciate and want to see um, the analysis uh, of claims voting. And, and so uh, I appreciate the effort and the fact that you distinguish between treated and untreated to me as very transparent, and I appreciate that. Thank you, Anna. I'm happy to do so. I'm glad it's helpful. Um, now, Matt, if it's okay with you, I would like to turn to the informal comments and objections we received. Yes. Um, and I'd like to thank all the parties for working with us to get to where we are today. It's said we're nearly consensual. Um, uh, I've noted in the agenda, Allegheny's concerns, uh, those have been resolved unanimously as the plan. Um, that was also agreed to by uh, Philadelphia Indemnity, the other surety provider. Anchor Point, um, we reached out to them in connection with their disclosure statement objection, which also included confirmation issues. Um, and Anchor Point's counsel I'm sorry, could you repeat that? The language we added for SDM is actually the same language Anchor Point has come to. Okay. Um, the objection of fortified investments has been resolved through language added to the confirmation order. Additionally, we received informal comments from the SEC, and we've incorporated those into the plan and confirmation order. Um, so other than the U.S. trustee's objection, which I'll discuss in a second, all the other objections were either reservations of rights formal objections to the plan or have been resolved. Um, the U.S. trustee filed an objection at docket number 550. Um, prior to his filing the objection, we worked with him to resolve comments concerns that he had for us. And we did a few things for him, several things. One of them was to remove this concept of related parties from you know, attaching that to the relief, the debtor relief and the proposed party relief as a surprise relation. And we also Yes. To not include consistent with what I understand is your judge's 
prior ruling to not include prospective exportations for entities that aren't in existence yet, and also to remove the released employees. Only the officers, the current officers, would be included. And they also, we just don't want that to also be shared. And we can go through that in a little bit as well. So the employees are out? They're out. Okay. It's only officers, the current officers. And they were in there before. It's just we sort of added the released employees as a... Right. Yeah. But they're not in there anymore. Okay. So it was like 24 of them? Yes. Okay. The debtor's understanding of Sager's decision's remaining objections relate to this released employee concept. Basically, the release of the preference claims that the debtor holds against these 24 employees and the expanded scope of limitation of liability to insurance proceeds from just not just 98 F wallet causes of action, but all non-released P&O claims. 98 F is a subset of those. And acknowledging that some of these employees never received any of that treatment. Some did, and are receiving expanded treatment, which officers did. But to the extent they were not the current officers, they're now receiving that treatment. So... Can I interrupt you for a second? Please. I just got a ping that it's the time for the TrueCoin status conference. Is TrueCoin on the line? I was going to say, if Mr. Lugano is on the line, can you please reach out to counsel and tell them we'll reschedule? And we'll proceed. Let's proceed with confirmation. Thank you. Your Honor, as I mentioned, the plan is to target this expensive, good-faith, arms-length negotiation between the debtors, the committee, the fifth lender, and various parties in interest, including creditors and customers. In our brief in support of confirmation, we laid out all of the compromises, reasons why the plan satisfies 1122, 1123, and 1129, and therefore should be confirmed. And I'm happy to go through each element. If Your Honor would like me to, otherwise I would propose to highlight some key features of the plan. You may highlight key features. Thank you. So we talked about at the beginning of the hearing this concept of account treatment procedures and why we filed them, to address concerns that customers were explaining, conveying to us both informally and formally, that there was not a lot of clarity on when these issues would be decided and who had to bring the motion and any of the sort of process. So by doing this, these procedures that were heavily negotiated between the committee, the debtors, and the fifth lender, and I want to thank them for bearing with us and working so hard to put these in a good spot, and that the plan administrator elect also participated in these discussions. And the second was to make sure that there was an orderly process that would not sort of result in like a run on the bank, but a run on the courts. And, you know, so we were also thinking of you. Thank you. 
Um, among other things, we have changed account treatment procedures. We provide an outside date of 120 days. Wine and vendor will notify customers as to which category of contract they belong in, whether it's uh, a legacy contract, a bespoke agreement, or a, um, a standard MSA, the vendor sheet, um, as well as providing an estimate as to when the wine down vendor expects to come to a conclusion with respect to those issues, the property issues. Uh, they also include noticing the opportunity to object to a both the wind down debtor's determination that something is property of the estate and also that it's not property of the estate. Um, and that to object both to the, the finding that it's not property of the estate and also the intent to distribute the currency, whether it's fiat or cryptocurrency, to the customer. Um, and we felt like those procedures appropriately respect the concerns, but also while also giving flexibility for the parties to meet and confer um, so that you know they could work together to bring an orderly, even more orderly process to the court. Um, turning now to the relief facing expectation, um, the debtor relief. Um, in Article 10.4 of the plan, these are the releases granted by the debtor to the released parties. Under the plan, the released parties <coughs> Um, the released employees are identified under C 
both negligence and actual fraud. Those are not protected. There's no relief. For the employees. Right. And they're not limited to the insurance. Those are carve-outs. The USFG also has issued a consideration provided to the released employees and characterized their actions as merely doing their jobs. They got compensated. So citing Jones has helped. And also argues that we have not met the master mortgage consumer statute. As an initial matter, based on how these releases are structured, it's just a release by the debtor, not tied to a third-party release. I argue that the appropriate lens to view these through is the debtor's business judgment under 1123B2A and not an application of master mortgage. That said, we did cover these in our brief. And as outlined in the White Declaration in the brief, we feel like we have met our burden under Zenith. As Judge Perry noted in Tribune, the Zenith factors are neither exclusive nor conjunctive requirements, but simply provide guidance for the court's determination. I fail note. Here the debtors would argue that the treatment of the released employees is appropriate based on the substantial contribution they've made to these cases, which were essential to the consummation of the plan and the transition, the orderly transition to the wind-down debtor. Among other things, these employees have irreplaceable institutional knowledge of vendor and customer relationships and contracts. This has proven essential to several things. Determining which contracts were necessary for the orderly wind-down of the estate and leveraging vendor relationships to renegotiate the terms of key agreements, such as the prior blocks agreement we just discussed at the top, resulting in substantial savings to the estate. They have protected and ensured the availability of customer account information and data and contracts that are critical to the post-effective date efforts of the wind-down debtor, especially with respect to investigative efforts and account treatment issues. Also, they have prepared more than a dozen transition memos for the plan administrator, identifying where data is stored and how to access it. They re-engineered the debtor's sophisticated bespoke database, driving several millions of dollars in annual savings and software costs. They also ensure that the debtors are compliant with their legal and regulatory obligations. Part of the compromise to get the committee to support the plan was this ability that they wanted to make in-kind distributions. And that meant we had to retain our invalid check carrier and our MTLs, our money transfer plan pieces. That required a lot of individual know-how and finance to keep those going and do an orderly handoff to the wind-down debtor. They also prepared and packaged the debtor's technology. This is not something someone could have come up with through Ingram. None of this they had to. In connection with the Swan License Agreement, if they had not stayed to do that, had not agreed to remain, they wouldn't have been able to consummate the Swan License Agreement and would have left those lucrative license fees unenforced. And then also, as my colleague mentioned earlier, the Swan License is non-exclusive. So they also had to be left the ability open to take that packaged technology and monetize it further by the wind-down debtor. And we already have parties interested who have approached us who are also interested in 
like you can access all of these. And um, I think we're going to look at all of this, notwithstanding the fact that they had a reduction in force that went into effect on November 14th, and that more than half the debtors were sold, went from 70 employees to 24. And they received the same notices as the, uh, the other employees that were um, ripped on the 14th. They received the same notices. They were asked, Okay, so these are people who otherwise, as part of a non-operating business, would not have a job, would yeah. not have worked. There was nothing for them to do other than the things that you just recited yeah. and are in Mr. Rice's declaration. Yes, the only other thing they could do is, is locate new employment. But they agreed to stay on to do this. They worked nights and weekends. They went above and beyond on a skeleton crew to do all these complicated things. Um, and as abused at the first day hearing, the testimony, we believe these employees have highly specialized skills and are in high demand. So they didn't need to stay. They could find other jobs. Um, and they did stay, not because we promised them anything. They didn't get any extra compensation. They did not get any severance. In fact, they didn't know that we were going to even push for these releases for them or releases for them until the plan was filed on the 28th. They agreed to stay on the 14th. So they had no knowledge of any of this until this plan was on file. I'm not even sure all of them have knowledge of it now. Um, it's our position that without the help of these 24 reduced employees that these cases most certainly would have converted. What, what is the <clears throat> value of their release preference claim? It's, we, uh, it's, we value them at zero, to be honest. There was there was one questionable um, expense reimbursement that I discussed with our financial advisor, and I got comfortable with it after that. It was just someone who enjoyed expensing things. But that was approved by the company. It wasn't, you know, these were le legitimate company expenses where I don't know if I would have done that, but not something, and it was around $20,000 in the aggregate, and um, not something we would expect to be pursued. So we assigned no value to those. And then further supporting, you know, and, and so Mr. Mr. Cadia will argue that these were incentives. This was some sort of incentive for them to stay. As I mentioned, they didn't know about this until after they agreed to stay. Um, and you know, I, I will also note that the voting classes overwhelmingly voted to support the plan, which had this concept of released employees. Um, I'll go through the third-party release and exculpation quickly, and then I'll turn it over to Mr. Cadia. Um, so, Your Honor, the third-party release is also in the plan in our Article 10.6.5. Um, the third, and as I explained earlier today, third parties were presented with multiple opportunities to opt out. We went a little bit extra to give the opportunity to non-voting parties to opt out, which some of them did. And we carved out the undeliverable parties from the third-party release expressly. We know that it would have applied anyway, but we thought it was important to make that very clear in the plan, that these undeliverable parties we talked about, my colleague talked about earlier, would not be included. Um, and it's our position the plan did not, the injunction did not apply to them. Uh, and then, you know, consistent with the court's rulings in other cases, um, we designed these releases to be consistent. And also 
there was. There are no objections lodged to the third party fees, which I don't think I've ever seen. So I was pleased with that. And on exculpation, Mr. Kudit did object. As I mentioned, we charged back the exculpation to the Kinsley fiduciary for actions taken during cases when they were acting in a fiduciary capacity. And we believe that that is consistent with Third Circuit law and your honor's prior rulings. So I will turn it over to Mr. Kudit to argue his further questions before we get to the other ones. Yeah, why don't, yeah. Is that, sorry, Mr. Kudit. I recognize you probably should have gone first. I offered. Being a gentleman. Yeah, I'll be very brief. Judge Marshall, Judge Ammon, good afternoon. But I do think it's important that we talk and none of the committee's voice specifically on these issues. Agreed. The Trachtel Land is just a moment here, your honor. This is what I call a transition plan. We went into bankruptcy very recently ago. We're coming out of bankruptcy very, very rapidly. Part of that is the nature of a company when it's a receivership ceases business operations relative to a filing. The bankruptcy is in its own way kind of mopping up the mess, repositioning it with customer representatives and a young, young administrator of their selection, overseeing in a streamlined fashion the resolution of all issues that were in the receivership. Now it's consolidated in the federal action. We're going to get people, their property, if it was a property estate, back to them relatively quickly. We'll deal with preference issues and an amnesty program. We'll deal with others who may be defendants. And we're wrapping it up in full and moving forward and getting this company's issues resolved quickly. That's a very, excuse me, it's a very unique kind of Chapter 11 plan. We don't see it very often. Usually you have pot plans, you have reorganization plans, you even have sales when you divvy up the proceeds. But a transition plan that streamlines various myriad issues into a consolidated process that will resolve itself over time has a special sort of workout in my experience. There are remarkably limited releases in a plan like this. This may be, I've been doing this for nearly 30 years, this may be the plan that on the farthest end of continuum in my experience that I've seen with such clear releases because in a transition kind of plan construct, the plan administrator is going to be suing an awful lot of people. There's an awful lot of things to be investigated and potential litigation that could happen here. So from our vantage point, and certainly in comparison to most Chapter 11 cases before this court and the courts in Delaware, the bandwidth of releases that we're talking about is really, really small. The window of potential targets is really, really wide. And that's because the plan administrator will finish the investigatory work, will make the proper decisions based upon the evidence as it presents itself. And so I think it's really important that we're thinking about how narrow the release question is that we conceptualize because it's really the right way to do it. The people that are getting the releases, few and far between, now they're going to include a certain number of employees. I don't remember the exact figure now. 24. Three from the bosses. Okay, 24 or three from the bosses. 
three people, 20 clicks. Okay. Um, when you are preparing a transition plan, a negotiation plan, especially a transition plan, I think the worst thing that we could do is hand over the estate, get into Google with some files, with some computers, to the wind-down administrator and say, figure it out. Okay. Talk about massive value erosion, wasted time, and it won't be effective. Okay. So we are in the mindset when negotiating this that very, very few people are getting releases here. We're only going to make sure that the people who get releases are people who are critical to doing this work transitionally. That's what due diligence, that's what you negotiate. To make sure that when the plan administrator takes over, those people who are absolutely critical to doing the job efficiently, effectively, and value accretively are there, and they ain't working if they don't get releases. That's pragmatism. Um, that's a pragmatic attribute of what we do. So bankruptcy is very theoretical. We're having a theoretical discussion about releases in the context of notice and a plan and is it right and what not. I think Your Honor can take comfort in the fact that contextually looking at this plan, looking at the job that the committee was focused on doing and how they were trying to do it, that we did sufficient diligence to make sure that only people who were critical to the next stage got the releases and that the releases were very narrowly tailored to the circumstances of what we're intending to do in the next phase of this of this bankruptcy and last resolution of this case. And that from the committee's perspective, this is a fair and appropriate outcome. Um, I, I grant you and I do leave um, with a certain amount of sensitivity the fact that this was announced at the end of November on Thanksgiving 22. But in my experience as well, just again try to contextualize it, we do releases in plan supplements. That's not an unusual context that people find this out towards the end of first heaven, first confirmation, because among <coughs> other things, this type of stuff is the stuff that you figure out just before you go to confirmation effectively. So this is not an unusual situation. Frankly, it's very, very common. And it's with that context, Your Honor, I hope that Your Honor will take a uh, will evaluate us as we address this. Any okay. questions for me? No, thank you. Thank, thank you. Everybody else got that as well. Thank you. Mr. Cudia. Again, Your Honor, Joseph Cudia for the United States Trustee. Uh, first off, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Debtors Council for working hard with us to resolve several of our issues, both before and after we filed our objection. And I can confirm that our objection as it relates to the exculpated parties provision has been resolved. And on behalf of the court, I thank you for raising that issue. The remaining parts of our objection concern recent changes to the plan, including whether the addition of released employees 
for those parties receiving debtor releases is proper and where the parties of interest, when they're evaluating the plan, got adequate notice and information regarding the added issues. On November 28, 2023, a week before the voting deadline, the debtors filed their amended joint Chapter 11 plan and a disclosure statement supplement. That is the first time that the concept of released employees was added. A week before? A week before the voting deadline, which stated that the list of them will be filed under seal, consistent with the privacy protection order. Article 2C of the disclosure statement supplement talked about the revised releases to be provided to, and I'm quoting, a small subset of employees and officers who agreed to remain employed or who have agreed to provide services as a contractor through the effective date of the plan following the departure of the majority of debtors' employees on November 14, 2023. The released employees are critical to the successful winding up of the debtors' business arm, the preservation of critical data, some as required by applicable law, and the general preservation of and transfer to the plan administrator and creditors' liquidation trustee of the debtors' books and records, which are critical to their post-effective date efforts. I'm not standing up here to degrade or diminish the contributions of the employees. But again, it's the position of the United States trustee that that reason is not appropriate one for the granting of releases. That essentially reads like a keep-cert motion. The released employees are being released from all preference exposure and personal financial responsibility for any non-released D&O claims, including the 98F causes of action. I do acknowledge that the released employees are not being released for criminal conduct, willful misconduct, gross negligence, or actual fraud. I missed that addition in 9B of the November 28th revised plan. The appropriate way to analyze the releases here by debtors of non-debtor entities is by looking at the Zenith master mortgage factors. Identity of interest between the debtor and non-debtor releasee, so that a suit against the non-debtor will deplete the estate's resources. Substantial contribution to the plan by non-debtor. Necessity of the release for the organization. Overwhelming acceptance of the plan and release by creditors. And payment of all or substantially all of the claims to creditors. I'll take them one at a time. Identity of interest. It is possible that some of the released employees may have indemnification agreements that could apply, perhaps to the three officers, but I am not aware of any evidence of the same. Substantial contribution to the plan. In the Genesis Health Venture case, the court looked at a proposed release of directors, officers, and employees. In rejecting those releases, found that performance of their duties, even those engaged in the bankruptcy process, do not provide a substantial contribution. And that's in quotes. 
without the contribution of assets to the organization. To quote, as in Zenith, the officers and directors of the debtors no doubt made meaningful contributions to the reorganization by designing and implementing operational restructuring of the company and negotiating the financial restructuring with parties in interest. However, the officers, directors, and employees have been otherwise compensated for their contributions, and the management functions they perform do not constitute contributions of assets to the reorganization. And I think that's key, because at least a defined term, substantial contribution, in the context of Genesis and Zenith refers to a financial contribution or some other type of contribution that makes the reorganization possible from a financial standpoint. Does it make a difference in this case based on what the debtor does, what's being contributed? It may be a distinction without a difference, but it is a distinction. They're not here on a, let's say, a Keith Kirk motion. Right, but also what these employees contributed. I'm sorry, I missed the last word you said. Oh, what these employees contributed. The employees here contributed their labor. Right, but it's unique, is it not? This is not an industry where they could have gone out and found replacement people easily to do what these people did in terms of renegotiating these agreements, protecting account information, packaging license, working on the Nevada trust charter, that type of thing. Does it make a difference? Zenith doesn't talk about this, right? Correct. I believe it makes a difference in that they're not here for a Keith Kirk motion, which is out on notice. This was added to the plan a week before parties were able to vote on it. And I think, quite frankly, our office does not always oppose Keith Kirk motions. One other point I'd like to make on that, as it refers to the officers, it could very well be an impermissible retention bonus pursuant to 503C1 of the Bankruptcy Code. Necessity of the relief. In Continental, the court looked at the necessity of the relief to the organization and found there was no necessity based on lack of financial contribution to the plan by the released parties in exchange for the relief and lack of evidence of indemnity exposure to the debtors. This plan was accepted by a sufficient number and amount of impaired classes. However, as I'll discuss later, we contend the acceptance was based on inadequate information as to the economic consequences of the released employees' positions. So, can I just ask, the U.S. Trustee's Office, if you were posturing this, you would have put it forward as some type of bonus plan? Yes. And can a bonus plan provide that your bonus is reliefs of a preference claim? 
again, the stated reasons by the debtor for giving these are they're staying on and doing their job. The U.S. trustee feels that that's appropriate in the context of some type of bootstrap motion, whether, again, honestly, I would have to ask for help on whether release of preferences would be appropriate. It might be an unfair question, so you can. But, again, if they had been better quantified, you might never be able to answer that question as well. And my last point is on inadequate information as far as revised releases. The addition of the released employees provision was made only one week before the deadline to object and without the disclosure as to the economic effects. And they were not part of the original. The released employees provision was not part of the original solicitation. The number and identity of the released employees was not filed with the court until four days after the objection deadline. It was filed under seal. But that's not unusual, that you don't know who's being released. In my experience, usually releases get paired back as it nears confirmation, not people get added, although my experience is rather limited. Now, in the declaration of Michael Weiss, which was, again, filed after the objection deadline, indicates that the releases are of little or no value to the debtor's estate, I believe is the quote. Parties evaluating whether to support the plan should be given this information and the backup behind it and the opportunity to reconsider their support. In conclusion, the U.S. trustee requests that confirmation of the plan not occur until such time as parties and interests have had time to consider these changes. Thank you. Mr. Coody, just articulate to me, for me, which changes. The release? The addition of the released employees. That's the only? Yes. Your Honor, may I have one moment for the record? Just a few clarifying points. The Weiss declaration was filed on December 12th. That was the date provided in the court order as the date when we were required to file it. We have testimony through Mr. Weiss' declaration that these were of little to no value. That is in paragraph 25 of the declaration. And that's, I think it's a bit of semantics that we say that they agreed to stay. They actually did agree to stay, but they didn't agree to stay in exchange for this. This was something that we put into the plan because we thought it was the right thing to do. And in terms of the timing of it, Judge Kahneman, on November 28th, the RIF happened on the 14th. So they were asked to stay on for 24 employees to do all of the technical work. They weren't just doing their job. They were doing the jobs of, you know, twice as many of them. This isn't something they did, and they didn't receive any additional compensation for it. And they knew that their employment would end at the end of the year. If this were a case, these employees would have to sign something that they were staying on. They would have to receive milestones. I mean, they did all of this without the cost of anything. We submit that it's not a case for a perp because it's a carrot and a stick situation. There was no carrot, you know, that was being used. Thank you. Thank you. We'll come down and greet counsel and then go into our next case.
How do you get past Genesis and Demas? You know, Genesis focused on an ordinary realization where a completely focused doing the job to help get to successful realization. This is not the same situation. We're not merely doing a job. We're doing a job for many people and for nothing. They weren't promised a single thing. Um, I feel like I explained where I, I laid out for the court all of the contributions that were made <coughs> What would have happened, <coughs> excuse me, if if the employees hadn't shuttered the debtor's API platform? With enormous costs would have been incurred. There would have been additional um, the ability of, of parties to go on there and make requests, and they would be unanswered because there wasn't the staff to be there. And so this skeleton crew did took apart the mantle of the API platform. Um, and you know, How else would it have been done? Would it have been an outsourcing thing? It would have to be outsourced, and we'd be starting from a censorship, to say the very least. These are the architects of this platform are the ones who <coughs> Those were all of the points I wanted to make in rebuttal. Um, I propose to now run to Mr. Allen. Okay. Uh, if I have questions, is this the time that I can raise yeah. them as well? Oh, I. With respect to the plan? Are you going through plan edits? Yes. Okay, yeah. It has not been filed? No, the changes are okay. no. Except with you right now, have not been filed. It's this? It's the rope, it's the skinny one. Okay. Um, the first change is uh, to definition 1.75, exculpated parties. And Mr. Cudio is okay with this definition? Yes, I believe he said it was his office consent. Yes, he um, yes, Your Honor, it did resolve our consent. Yes, okay. And looking at your past precedent, you added additional language that provided to the extent they are not acting, to the extent they are acting as a state fiduciary at the time between the petition date and the effective date. We added that in a few places. Okay. Limited as to scope. Thank you. In um, the definition of release parties, uh, 1.149. We removed the reorganized debtors. They don't exist. So, that makes sense. 
and on the next page, on page six, twenty-five of the PDF, this is the account fee that's here. At the request of Sam, we extended the response deadline that customers would have to either you know give the notice of intent to distribute went from ten to fourteen days, and the the timeline for them to file an estate property determination objection was extended from fourteen days to twenty-one days. Those were the recent changes to the plan. I'm happy to answer any other plan comments, or I could run through the changes to the confirmation order. Okay. Well, first of all, let me let me ask: Is there any other objections to confirmation that have not been raised? Because now is your opportunity. Okay. I hear none. So I am going to close the record on it with one exception. With the respect to the testimony that we heard earlier, or excuse me, I don't want to, the comments we heard earlier this afternoon from Ms. Chang, I believe, with respect to her claim. I'm going to ask, did she receive anything for appearing today at the hearing? And clarification? Yes. No, but we're happy to compensate her. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, I'm saying she was, you did not provide her anything for commenting today. Okay. I'm assuming you're joking. Okay. It's been a very long day, and I appreciate everybody's patience. Pardon? How would you honor this proceeding? Would you like to provide any comments to the plan, or? Well. First of all, why don't I give you a ruling? And then let's talk about some modifications. So just for the record, prior to the confirmation hearing, I did review the disclosure statement, the third amended plan, the plan supplements, related documents, as well as the objections to confirmation, some of which have been resolved or withdrawn prior to this hearing. I also reviewed the debtor's memorandum of law in support of approval, the disclosure statement, and confirmation of plan at docket 557. And while that memorandum isn't evidence, it is part of the record before the court, and the memorandum lays out with specificity how the debtor's statutory burdens and requirements. I listened to, I mean, excuse me, I weighed the arguments of counsel and the evidence presented, including the Weiss Declaration in support of confirmation at docket 558, the Murphy Declaration at docket 559 regarding the best interest test, and the Karpuk Voting Declaration at docket 624. With respect to the disclosure statement, I'm satisfied the debtors have carried their burden under section 1125 of the bankruptcy code. All objections to the disclosure statement were resolved or overruled. The disclosure statement as amended describes, among other things, the background of the debtor's events leading to chapter 11 filing, the events in this case, the debtor's election to pursue the liquidation transaction under the plan, and various provisions including 
classification treatment of claims mean for implementing the plan, as well as the releases, injunction, and exculpation. So I find that it does, the disclosure statement does contain information adequate to permit a hypothetical stakeholder to make an informed decision to vote for or against the plan. So the disclosure statement is approved on a final basis. Uh, with respect to the plan, the debtors have also met their burden and all of the applicable subsections of 1129 of the Bankruptcy Code are satisfied to confirm the Third Amendment plan. I am not going to address each standard. I just will note that no one has challenged good faith. No one's challenged classification. Based on the Murphy Declaration and the liquidation analysis, the plan satisfies the best interest test of Section 1129A7. And both based on the evidence adduced here today at the hearing, specifically Ms. Chang's representation that her vote in Class 3B to reject the plan is in U.S. dollars. The court finds um, that the vote is adjusted. As a consequence, the second supplemental voting declaration reflects that all voting class have voted to accept the plan. With respect to objections to the plan, um, the U.S. trustee objects to the plan's proposed released employees for any preference exposure. Um, a debtor release, may release claims under 1123B3A if the release is a valid exercise of the debtor's business judgment, is fair, reasonable, and in the best interest of the estates. The Weiss Declaration establishes that the debtor releases are limited in scope the product of arm's length negotiations and reflect the substantial contribution made by the released parties and released employees. His uncontroverted declaration identifies these employees' contributions, which counsel reiterated in detail today. And he believes absent these releases, the plan may not have garnered the necessary support. And I think that's supported today by comments of the committee's counsel. No contrary evidence has been presented. So I'm going to overrule the United States trustee's objection. So um, I think that's it, except I have some comments on the plan and maybe a few on the form of order. I'm going to start with the plan, and I'll try to go through these expediently. I must admit that um, as you amend things, then my comments kind of shrink. So I'll try to truncate. So one of the comments that I had when we started today and was that how this um, toggle plan had ultimately resulted in a um, liquidation transaction. So to me, that sections five and 6.5, excuse me, and 6.7, they contradict or they don't apply. And I appreciate your comment about confusing people with a lot of edit on a document. But I do think the confirmation order itself, and I don't recall seeing it, should make, um, there should be a paragraph in the confirmation order explaining that while the plan referred to a toggle, that you're not proceeding in that way. And I think you could probably pull the language directly from the disclosure statement that was filed on the 27th that made that clear. So, you know, to the extent 
and I'll just generally speak about this because I think it's a modification you can all get together and agree on. But you know, there are there's reference to references to the restructuring transaction memo and the plan support agreement, and there's references to the issuance of securities and that type of thing. But that's all. It, yeah, and so those provisions don't apply. But I, in some ways you're going to have to carve it out because 6.5 talks about the toggle. But then, you know, 6.7 talks about reorg transaction and 6.7b talks about equity. So I can't, I don't want to sit here this afternoon and take up your time, but I'm certain, you know, that you all can slice that up so that the confirmation order reflects what's accurately going forward. So, Your Honor, will the committee um, in the confirmation order will add a provision that brings a liquidation, pursuing a liquidation toggle and that section X, Y, and Z are Appro not applicable? Um, okay, so in, in section 6.10, And this may be semantics, but there's there's a reference, and I'm not sure where it is off the top of my head. It says there's a reference to crypto being transferred. And my question was, why is crypto being transferred if there's a question about ownership? How is it not a violation of the cash management order? And maybe it could be that I'm misreading something and I'm not sure exactly where I found this in 6.10. Your Honor, I would, I would say that the confirmation order restates paragraph 8 of the final cash management order. Okay. So to the extent there is an inconsistency we have, we thought it was important for our customer to see that okay. it says in the confirmation order. In 6.I, <coughs> is this the termination alignment memo? Yeah. Um, happens if there's a termination? What happens to all the accounts? Well, I mean, uh, that's a doomsday scenario. Right. Well, the final liquidation administration and distribution of the non-debtor assets, that would include determining the fees. It, there's no way it could happen without? Yes. Okay. They can't decide to terminate and leave off Okay, so 610J deals with the liability of the plan administrator and indemnification, and 610K deals with no liability of the wind-down debtor. And I will not prospectively grant indemnification, and so I would propose 
that, and so what I say to people, and I, and I think most of the judges on this bench do this now, it's part of your case closing motion. So rather than take it out, maybe put in here and consult with Mr. Kudia, subject to entry of a final order of the court, but it previews it for parties. This is what you're going to be asking for. But, and then, so for both of those, it would be subject to entry of a final order of the court. Uh, for, no, yeah, for the liability of the plan administrator indemnification, it's subsection J and K for the wind down debtor. Oh, they're existing. Right. Oh, sorry. Wait. No, So I think then maybe it's just the plan administrator. Yeah. Thank you. Seven point one deals with distributions. And it talks about undeliverable distributions. And I need to find the comment, but I have down undeliverable distribution one year after the, I have down um, effective date. Is that accurate? I can't find it, I'm sorry. Do you find it? I can't even find it. Oh, three. Okay, so my question is, should that be after the effective date or distribution date? Right. Um, they, they're permitted under Delaware law to indemnify their officers and directors. The plan administrator is the sole officer and director. So we didn't see any issue with providing for indemnification of that individual to the plan. Oh, you do have separate authority for it. 
is what you're saying. You don't need the bankruptcy court authority for it. Uh, as long as the plan doesn't uh, forbid any kind of indemnification, I can be on board. Maybe you should clarify that I'm not trying to limit any right you have, otherwise have. Okay. So, but this court doesn't prospectively indemnify. So maybe you all should collectively sure. tweak that language. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what you want to do, Mr. Stark. Exactly. I'd appreciate that um, the corporate, you know, that you had the agreement, and that makes perfect sense to me, and just to, to avoid any conflict. Yeah. I only have like three more comments. So this is 8.6. Says there was going to be no interest, right? So 7.9 talks about allocation between principal and accrued interest. Are they inconsistent or am I missing something? And you can tell me I'm missing something. Okay. 8.8, .8, disallowance of claims. I think you can withhold distributions, but you can't disallow under 502D. You can't have disallow a claim until you have a judgment under Worldwide Direct. I think those are all my comments on the plan. <clears throat> I have to find my order. Oh, I mean, it's a lot to divide by comments. Of the order, yes. And I don't. Do I have a red line order? I, Apparently, I do. Yeah, the, the first change is on page 14. Bear with me, because I'm going to um, go through mine simultaneously. If, so I'm going to turn page two of them at the same time. I had some comments, but they have been satisfied by what transpired today. So, okay. 
Okay. I'm on 14. Okay, I had it underlined, so. So, and we did it in apostrophe. And AA. Y and AA. Yep, I see it. Thank you. And CC, we added, I believe it's going to sound Sophia. Okay. Yeah, bear with me a second. I had a comment, but it might have been taken care of. I'm sorry, what was your next one? Oh, it's um, paragraph E, paragraph 6. And this is, again, to just clarify that VC was not a tabulated class. It was a business class. It was a lawyer's devoting to Okay. Okay, hold on one second. So I just wanted to note that paragraph three, mm -hmm. and I realized that ones are finding a fact and the others are orders, but paragraph A and three are the same, and paragraph four is the same as M, if I can read my own writing. Okay. If that's not your, if you want to still move on. It's fine now. Okay, where where are you now? I'm sorry. So I'm at 12. You're at 12? Paragraph 12. Okay. In light of what was represented today about resolutions of the U.S. trustee, was that language okay with the U.S. trustee? No, I was talking about the settlement provision. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's oh sorry. Yes, Your Honor, we typically object to when there's a provision in the plan or the confirmation order that has plans as a settlement overall. Uh, to the extent there are any 9019 settlements that are contained within it, we're okay. fine with the paragraph. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. And it's language in new paragraph 33, like the language requested by Interplan and also by SPM. 
And this is just to note that the notices that are sent to customers through the account treatment procedures also be sent to Concord Records. Okay. Okay, so post effective date, there'll be a website? Yes. Okay. Okay, let me ask does anybody wish to be heard with respect to the form of the confirmation order? Okay, I'll enter the confirmation order when it's filed under certification with the modifications we addressed, the clean and the black line, and a representation that the Parties who participated here today have signed off on it, including Mr. Cudi. Of course. And, and let me just say to the parties, it is really important that you all work well together, and it is apparent to the court here that the parties have spent a lot of time working together to get to this point today. So I, it's not lost on me how much effort this has taken. So is there anything else for today? No. Okay, well, we're going to conclude this, but I'd ask the debtors to stay a second. Um, I, w I don't know what was done with what we were supposed to do at 4 o'clock. <laughs> and so I can, no, I was going to say I can find out, but I, obviously I can't do something without all the parties here. Um, but I may have to, I suspect you guys are done for the day. Um, so. No, no, I think we were just going to reach out to them to see if we could potentially come up with a schedule. Would you do that? And if, yeah. if you guys yeah, we want, we we'll just get on Zoom. And, but let me, because we're getting into holidays, um, so. I have hearings starting at noon tomorrow, including a first day. So I could probably hop on for a quick call in the morning or um, on Wednesday. I could get on at 10. Or I'm sorry, am I messed up? Oh, okay. Tomorrow is Wednesday. Tomorrow. I don't, I'm not, I don't have that much ego. I'm not that needed. Um, 
Because I think we can try to just work it out with Gus token in terms of scheduling, but if you want to have the conference, that's fine. Up to you. Well, I, you know what? I, I don't know if the parties want to be heard because I know that you filed pleadings and then I just entered an order. Um, so maybe you could talk about scheduling. Maybe we could then schedule a status conference or we could get on talk about it. But a, a meet and confer preliminarily would be very helpful. And then, so Thursday, I could do um, I could do 10 a.m. and oh, I could do nine or ten on Thursday. Yeah, and I have a bunch of honestly, I'm doing end of year fee hearings, yeah. so they could possibly start coming off. But if you, if we could reach out. Just why don't you confer first, and then let's reach out. Think so, but you know what? We need witness availability right. issues. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mr. Detweiler. Um, I appreciate it, the updates. I don't want to have too much more conversation without them participating. So, okay, thank you all very much. Um, I appreciate everybody's efforts. Sorry for the long day, and safe travels, everyone. And if I don't see you, everyone, have a really good holiday. We stand adjourned.